Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. It's our year in reading review where we look back at last year, which will be 2022 this time, and we talk about all the books we read, both for the podcast and just kind of individually. But but this year, this year is extra special because we have been doing this podcast for five years, right? I'm not making that up. That's nope, right. That's, that's right. I don't know the exact date we started, but yeah, five years in January of this year. All right. So the first thing, I always do this. So we'll come to... We'll come to this year's totals immediately for word count because every year I, I do like a terrible calculus <laughs> based on like page count to audio length to word count depending on what I'm dealing with. And I try and I try and quantify how many words did you and I read for this podcast. This year we read somewhere around 1,280,000 words around there, which is pretty high. It's actually our second highest total, I think. For the five years we've been doing this, again, according to my to my crazy calculus, we've read 5,308,000 words or thereabouts. Um, and my first question for you, Bill, <laughs> in this, this pop-up game show <laughs> is, <laughs> how, what year did we read the most words? Well, you already told me it's not this year. The year we did a lot of podcasts, what was that? That was the year we did the Jemison, Chesterton... I think we did Phil Crispin's that year too, like Midwest Futures. What did we do? We did Coast of Utopia, Chambers, and War and Peace. It might be that year. So what is that, 2019? 2019, is that your final answer? Yes. Yeah, it's definitely 2019. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> By like half a million words. <laughs> and I mean, a lot of that was we just read so much, but it turns out War and Peace is a really, really long, long book. book. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my favorite book in the world, I think, besides maybe, a you know, Muriel Spark or Penelope Fitzgerald. But it is, it is actually, turns out, I think the longest read we've done, which makes sense because it's sort of famous for that. But I feel like Black Lamb and Gray Falcon and even the annotated memoirs of U.S. Grant, like, though. Those were, those are, I don't know, I'm surprised that War and Peace outpaced both of them, but according to my calculations, it did. Well, I think, I mean, War and Peace, I think our copy was like 1,100, 1,200 pages, but a pretty small font, too, yes, right? Yes, very much Whereas, so. like, the Grant and the uh, West were both pretty long, but not nearly as many words not, on the page. Not quite as crammed in, yeah. No. <laughs> so besides the, you know, the fun little pop-up game show question, I do just want to kind of ask about a few of our past big reads. And, and more generally, kind of has your opinion on any big read cast book changed with time? Or like what opinion has most changed since you first read it, you think? Good or bad? I don't know if any of them have really materially changed. I don't think there were any that I was like, oh, I loved this, and now I think back on it and think, oh, it was bad, or vice versa. I think I've maybe softened on a few both ways. Do you know what I mean? Like, looking back on it, I'm like, okay, maybe this wasn't quite as good or bad as I thought. Right, yeah. Like, I I don't... look. The Coast of Utopia is the one we read that I, I was the most performatively grouchy about. And looking back on it, I think I am less grouchy about it, although it may just be that I haven't read it in a while, and so I've forgotten how annoyed I was about some of it. There's a few that I just don't ever think about. Uh, like, I can't remember the last time I really thought about wait, wait. freedom. How about how about The Unconsoled? No, I do think about The Unconsoled sometimes. You remember that scene where they're, like, dancing on the table? Yes. That's the only scene I think about from that book. I think about it every two months. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could tell you like what happens in the unconsoled with any level of precision, but I remember the vibe of it very strongly. Yeah, Does that makes yeah. sense. No, totally. So yeah, so I think about that again. Not every day, but every so often. 
I, I think for me, the one that I was grouchiest about was N.K. Jemison's trilogy. And again, for the record, like I, I, I thought the first book, I thought five, six of it was brilliant. Like some of the best sci-fi I've read. And I thought the next two books were good. It just felt like, felt like the mistake she made at the end of the first book, in my opinion, is kind of what then the rest of the series was, which actually, that's a common thing, in my opinion. Like I think Ender's Game kind of does that. You know, like the last the last idea it has is not always the best. And then he uses those to make five more books. But you're right, Freedom, actually, of all the books, like I feel like Freedom is a book I should think about more, but I really don't, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the only one where I, I never really think about it unless I'm scrolling through the podcast for some reason, like the, the archive, and see it. And I'm like, all yeah. right, we did that one. Okay, so anything else you want to add out there as far as, you know, softened, hardened opinions? I mean... We talk about this every second podcast or so, but uh, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon has now become yeah. just a sort of mythic thing in my imagination. Yeah. Um, in a way that, I mean, like, War and Peace is great, you know, but it, it actually didn't do that to me. Like, War and Peace was supposed to be good, and it, it was supposed to be incredible, and it was incredible, and so very good. Whereas Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, I did not expect to be that good, and I still think about it all the time. No, I feel like that is going to be the quintessential big read for me, to be honest. Because War and Peace actually did sort of work me over. And um, Christian Lovren's daughter did too, actually. Almost at the level of Black Lamb and Grey Falcon for me. But, uh, but Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, it was, it was sort of getting... It was, it was like you, you kind of got unstitched by the book and then put back together by it. And there was a similar effect with Charles Taylor as well. But Rebecca West is hitting you at so many different levels, right? Like there is a narrative momentum that she's also carrying through that. Like, of course, Charles Taylor is just doing philosophy. And not that philosophy can't be its own sort of like, you know, high art form in a way. But she's, she's doing a multi-layered attack on your brain that I just don't think I've had done to me. But... Yeah, Rebecca West, she's kind of queen of the podcast, I think. I think so. Yeah, okay. So what's uh, what's our best episode then? So I don't, I won't say I've never gone back and listened to an episode, but I don't do it like a lot. You know, there's quite a few I don't know if I've ever listened to after I recorded them. So I don't know. I, I, I will say, I do think our episode on the long ships has gotten a lot of really good reactions from my friends. I, weirdly, uh, a great podcast. I know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we were, the, okay, spoiler, we were kind of like the least prepared for that one than I think we've been for a lot of them. But we had, like, the gimmick we used was perfect for the book. That might be, I don't know if it's our, actually our best, but that's I think that's the one I've gotten the most sort of, hey, I listened to that and really enjoyed it. Um the one I think our most popular in terms of listens on SoundCloud is the thing itself, which we did with yeah. Martin Wendell Jones. Uh, I don't know if that means it's the best, but it's, a, what's the, it's the only what's, sort of objective measure I have. What's the one you're most proud of, you think? Uh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> honestly, it might be Charles Taylor. I think we did a good job with a very difficult text when we read A Secular Age. Um, that might be the one I'm most proud of, because I think we were pretty coherent. I haven't listened to it in a while. Um, but I think we did a good job hacking through a, a, a very, very dense text. Definitely the hardest book we've done. Yeah, no, I, I, so for me, it's, it's, it's either Charles Taylor or, again, Rebecca West, because I, I feel like both books demanded that we approach it and I, just like a, with a higher level of organization. But you're right. I actually, I, I'm saying her because that was my first thought, but truthfully, yeah, Charles Taylor required more of us, more of me for sure, than any other podcast did. Because I just don't want to, I wanted to, you know, we're just a couple of, you know, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I really, I wanted to do it justice, partly because the book meant so much to me. I actually do think about um, the end of that book where he talks about moralism as a way of inculcating 
like the way, you know, there's like a higher way of going through life, which of course he's talking about Christianity, but not just Christianity. He talks about moralism is like maybe useful for inculcating a sense of that in your children. But if it becomes hardened into kind of the legalistic, you know, pharisaical ways of the New Testament, that's where it goes wrong. The way he described and pulled that apart, I honestly think about all the time, like in relation to my own children, but also just in relation to myself, you know, like, is this hardening into a moralism or, or am I, or am I seeking a way through life that is sort of virtue led as opposed to just kind of rules based. And that's just like two pages, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that's like not most of the book. <laughs> okay. So what, so then last kind of last questions I have at least locked and loaded for you. What book surprised you the most? Besides Black yeah, Lemon I mean, Grey Falcon. I was say Black Lemon Grey Falcon, <laughs> but we'll, we'll try to come up with a more interesting answer than that. Uh, I think Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I was prepared to really like it. I was not prepared to realize that Susanna Clarke might be our best living fantasy author. Does that yeah, make sense? Totally. <laughs> uh, that might be the one that, again, I was like, yeah, this looks fun. I'm excited about it. Let's go. And then I finished it and said, oh, I am in love. This is wild. And then, of course, Piranesi, I like even better which feels difficult because I like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell so much. Um, but that might be the one that I, other than Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, where I went in expecting a good book and instead walked away, like, holding it over my head and preaching to people about it. You yeah. Know what I mean? Well, and that, honestly, that, that might have been my answer. I, I'd read that book before, and I, I actually did reread it for the podcast, and I liked it even more the second time, although I've always loved it, and I've always sold it to people as, like, imagine if Jane Austen wrote fantasy, which is, like, about as high a compliment as I can give something, to be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I was going to say is, for me, honestly, I think it's probably um, Whitaker Chambers. Reading Witness... Yeah. Reading Witness really caught me off guard, especially the biographical stuff. Like the actual trial of Alger Hiss was interesting, and I found it convincing in a way I didn't expect to expect to be convinced by it. But truthfully, like his biographical stuff with his brother committing suicide and the way that he grows up in the fields of like Long Island, I I, I honestly again, it's a book that I think about somewhat regularly and which I didn't expect to. So I, for me, yeah, that's probably up there for me. So, okay, well, that's so, I, I, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much our podcast about a podcast. I've been love I've loved doing this project. I think that, um, I do think if you wanted to go back and see highlights, I do think Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is up there along with Charles Taylor, um, definitely the thing itself. And then actually the long ships. I, I will say, I thought our podcast with Phil Christman was also a blast. Um, oh yeah, no, it was, it I was, was just, quite happy with that one. It was too. this, it was this year. So I don't know if you're looking for, if you're looking for the, the deep archive cuts, I think Black Lemon Gray Falcon's a great place to start. But um, that's enough of me being kind of an ad man. Well, wait, wait, wait. We have we have one more obvious question you didn't ask because you're too much of a positive guy. And that's, <laughs> looking back on it, are there any of the episodes you think we could have done a better job on? And oh. No, I didn't tell him I was in advance I was going to do this. It's this is true. a new idea I had. <laughs> it's terrible yeah. you did this. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great question. I, I'm looking at our list right now. I don't remember the man who was Thursday in Notting Hill very well. Mm, yeah. And I remember talking about the prescience of to- of a Ch- Chesterton as far as the balkanization at like a, at the level of a city, you know, like that's what Notting Hill's about. Um, yeah. But I actually, and I, I remember we had a great ending with that one where we talked about like, I think the book is all about reality kind of unmasking itself in sort of terms of like Chesterton's own conversion experience, you know, like kind of humanist to like 
kind of theistic to then very like clearly Christian. And you talked about how Sunday was just Chesterton himself romping through the, through the book. Um, so that was, that must've been better than I'm remembering. But I, I actually, I don't remember us being like, I don't like, I don't know. I don't think we did justice to Chesterton negatively or positively. Probably that's my best stab in the dark though. What, what, what about you? Well, it might be our Shirley Jackson one, not because it was bad, but because I don't think I properly communicated how good that book is. Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I don't think it was a bad podcast by any means. I don't know if I quite communicated, we, I mean, not just me, like, I don't know if we quite communicated just how great that book is, but... That, 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 book, that book is just so hard because, one, it's actually enormously famous, right? Like, it, 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 people probably haven't yeah. finished it as much as they've started it, is my guess. But it's the kind of book where, like, a lot of people have at least tried to read it. I don't know why you wouldn't finish it if you've tried, but that's my instinct, is that the people have read, again, like, the famous first paragraph, right? It sort of leaps out from the conversation of great first paragraphs. But I also, I think it's a weird book because I, I don't know that it has a, a, a good, like, it, it's created a genre that it itself doesn't totally belong to. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like the, ha- the Haunting of Hill Absolutely. House is like, it's not actually, like, it's not actually all the things it inspired. It's something far weirder and more gothic and and more psychological. And I don't know how you, I don't know. I, I'm not sure we have maybe the literary background even to dissect that, you know? No, that makes sense. And again, I, I don't think it's a bad episode, although I think I didn't do the audio balance correctly. I think that's another thing I think. Yeah, about that's sometimes. fair. I, I have a few of those. Um, uh, no, I, I've been generally quite happy with our podcast, though. I just, I thought it would be fun to, to ask you for some, some self-criticism. I wish, I mean, I will say, since we're on this, and I love flogging myself to death, um, I... I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going! It's a, it's, a, it's a joke! It's a reference to the book title he's about to reference. Sorry, I, go ahead. I, I remember <laughs> really enjoying doing our In Defense of Flogging, but it was our second podcast. I'm not sure we had quite as much of, like, a groove or an outline, and um, I, I do, I would love to, like, revisit that book and see what we thought now, especially, like, post-2020, to be honest. Um, because I mean, he, I mean, yeah, he says some crazy things in that book. I, I still think the book was basically like an, a, you know, an, a reductio ad absurdum about how bad our criminal system is. You know, like I didn't take, I'm not, I'm not sure any of his suggestions are, are realistic, but I, I'm not sure they need to be. I mean, I think he thinks they are, but, but then, yeah. But also I, since we're going to throw it out there, I, I would, I want to get one more plug in for like, I don't know. I don't even remember what we talked about with freedom. <laughs> you, <laughs> like I remember you and I basically were like, this book has one um, language for meaning, and it's sex. That's the only like way of defining good, bad, ugly, interesting is through a, a, a sexual lens, which partly is just not our jam, but also like there had to be more to the book than that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I listened to that podcast a while ago. Uh, I still don't remember the book very much. Um, I think we talked about quite a few other things, and we actually got pretty into it. I think we okay, did a pretty good, good job. But, yeah, the, the book as a whole – and it's not that I hate the book. I, I, As I think I said at the time, I think we both enjoyed the book maybe more than oh, we were even sure. expecting to. But it, it doesn't really stick with me. But, uh, yeah, we talked about other things. That was the idea. I, I think that was my idea, not to claim it. But I remember being very proud oh, perfect. Yeah. of saying, yeah, the only language they speak is sex. Look at me. I, I, uh, I'm one of the big kids. I can play in literary criticism. <laughs> Observe. I had an idea. It's a really, it's a good idea because I've totally internalized it. <laughs> um, okay, okay. Any, any other surprise questions? <laughs> uh, I mean, I could probably come up with a few, but no, I think uh, I think we can move on to the meat of the podcast. Yeah, no, now. yeah. So it's been I I so I I kind of had a weird year in reading. 
I think you and I both had a very, very busy year. You, I think, saliently did not read 104 books or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not read 104 books this year. I met my, my usual yearly goal. Exactly. Like, on the nose at on December 31st at about 7 o'clock p.m. local time. <laughs> but I did do it. Uh, but I did not. I read. I read fifty-two, which is my usual goal. Uh, I did not try to read one hundred and four books last year. What I noticed was, um, it seems like your your comics intake went immediately way up. Yeah. Well, I didn't read in twenty twenty one when I read one hundred and four books. I read exactly one comic, and that was a reread of The Vision by Tom King because we were contemplating doing it for a podcast and didn't. Uh, and that was the only one I read. Whereas I actually went back up to a more ordinary amount of, right. of comics reading well, it looks like you it looks like you crushed the immortal hulk i did yeah it's <laughs> i don't really have anything clever to say about it it's an interesting comic uh i had read the first two volumes before it ran for four or five years al ewing wrote it it's a good it's a good monthly comic uh i i don't know is it's that exciting you know it, it's good but uh it, it has all the same problems that monthly comics always do where it, it like it can't quite decide where it's going sometimes and it'll have a big reveal that it doesn't give enough time to because it's trying to cram every issue into you know 22 pages or whatever it is and and doesn't necessarily know where it fits in it had some very good ideas i appreciate the big thing it did is it made the hulk very scary which he hasn't been for a long time as i understand it particularly the first couple volumes where he's okay so the idea is that bruce banner dies in one of the big like cross cross crossover comics that I never read because they're always terrible, right? <laughs> Except that, and so like as far as everyone else knows, he's dead, but then he wakes up in the desert somewhere and it turns out he can't die, and boy, do they put him through the ringer in this comic to prove it uh, at various points gotcha. in time. Uh, it's a real body horror comic, uh, but the, the Hulk who comes back isn't the usual sort of Hulk smash childlike Hulk. It is a much more articulate and much meaner Hulk who is still sort of good aligned but in a like i'm going to do terrible things to the bad guys kind of way right and there's some really good moments where like a bad guy turns the corner and the hulk is there and he's huge and he's smiling and he's got veins bulging out of his you know and he's terrifying in a way that he hasn't been before and it gets all tangled up in this very big sort of metaphysical question about why the hulk has to suffer and whether that's god or the devil making it happen and like various government agencies trying to track the Hulk and turning, like, doing terrible biological mutations to people. And then he's briefly a revolutionary for a while. It's very (laughs) scattered. Uh, The the writing is decent. Like, I'll definitely read more Al Ewing. I'd like to see him get a proper 12-issue maxi-series where he can write everything out in advance. The art is frequently incredible and very disturbing. Like, they really leaned into it. There are some panels in that that are really troubling. (laughs) Uh, But good. So that's well, I think that's all I have to say about the Immortal Hulk. Well, since we're here though, I, I think I know the answer to this. But um, what were the what was the best comic you read this year? Rorschach by Tom King. That's what I thought you would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Tom King, I haven't read everything he's ever written. I've only read the first four volumes or so of his Batman. Uh, there's you know, you know he's written a lot, but I will say his twelve issue maxi series run. I haven't read all of them, but I've read most of them. Continues to be just about perfect. Um, so in years past, I've read The Vision, Mr. Miracle, and The Sheriff of Babylon. And this year, I read Omega Men, which is his first one, and which I don't have that much to say about. It's fine, but it's a little immature. I mean, not in the sense that it's puerile, but in the sense that he hasn't quite figured it out yet, right? Right. But then I read Strange Adventures, which is about Adam Strange, 
who is this weird hero I don't know anything about, and Rorschach. And Rorschach caught me completely off guard. So it's Rorschach as in the Watchmen hero Rorschach, right? right? And when I heard they were doing a Rorschach comic, I said, good God, why? And then they said, well, we hired Tom King to write it. And I said, well, if anybody can do it, it's Tom King. And then I read it, and it is not what I thought it would be at all. It is not about Walter Kovacs. Um, it is about a detective investigating the murder of a guy in a Rorschach mask who appears to have been trying to... Well, not the murder. There's a guy in a Rorschach mask and a young girl in a cowboy outfit who appear to be trying to shoot this sort of almost Trump-like political figure, but they get killed by the Secret Service, basically, and the Trump-like political campaign hires a private eye who looks a lot like Columbo, for the record. Oh, Uh, okay. (laughs) He doesn't really act very much like Columbo, but he looks a lot like him. They hire this private eye to figure out what the heck happened, and he uncovers a web of interesting deceit. He doesn't give you a straight answer as to what happened because, you know, it's a Rorschach test, right? Like, that's the whole point of the book, right? right? Uh, And it's real good. Uh, It is really good. And that's probably all I'm going to say about it. Let's let's jump to the actual the actual books because there is there's one person we have to talk about immediately. It's it's a classic Joel favorite, but you've blown by me in terms of actual <laughs> reading. <laughs> um, but you read I think all of Charles Portis's novels. Um, just the That's six, correct. right? Yeah. So you read all you read five. Five, five. Yeah. So you read all five of his novels. Um, you have them ranked for us even. And I did. I be, because this is a podcast. You know, I'm you have to go through the ranking. <laughs> I will. So. Here's the thing about Charles Portis. Charles Portis is wonderful. I don't always remember a heck of a lot about what happened in the books after I finished them. Because there's sort of a roller coaster of just, like, weird zany characters you meet on a road trip, right? Oh, yeah. And so it's, like, three of them in particular, that's how it is. And that's Norwood, Dog of the South, and Gringos. I remember more about Gringos, probably because I read it more recently, because I think it's the best of those. Um, But it's just a very strange, like... This weird guy goes on a road trip and meets a lot of weird people. And then at the end of the day, he's not really any different from where he started. And they're all excellent. Uh, all five, I think, Charles Portis novels are wonderful. But a lot of them, like, specifically what happened, I get them mixed up with each other because they're all kind of similar. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do a great summary of, of the plot. But uh, Charles Portis wrote five novels, a number of short stories and other stuff. I have a collection of, they call it a Charles Portis miscellany, I think which I didn't get to last year, uh, which includes, if I remember right, newspaper articles, short stories, a screen, like a short film screenplay, I think. Maybe it's a stage play. Like, it's just sort of a bunch of stuff they threw in a book. Right. So I didn't read that. So I, you know, there is another book in the same publishing series that I haven't read, but I read all of his novels. And uh, is Charles Portis the funniest guy in the world, Joel? Yes. He might be, right? No, he is. No, he, he, he actually, he definitely is. I mean, I, I genuinely like, so he's, he's one of those people who like, I would never try to even emulate cause he's such a, he's such a unique, weird genius, you know, but every time I read him, I feel expanded, you know, as a reader, yeah. I love it. But as a writer too, it just feels like the horizon literally, you know, rushes outward from you. Cause you realize that you can do anything you want as long as you have enough skill and patience to pull it off. I'll, I'll go through in reverse order, or in, in the reverse order of my ranking, rather than the order they came out. Although it's actually not too dissimilar. There's only one switch. So Norwood, I think, is number five. It's his first novel. A guy goes on a road trip to New York because somebody owes him, like, I don't know, like $20. Like, it's really not very much money. Uh, and encounters a number of weird con men. And he's sort of a country singer, but not really. Like, he doesn't really go anywhere. He's just sort of a musician. And he has a series of weird adventures. And it's hilarious and very funny. Uh, and... 
I think it's the weakest of them because he hasn't quite developed the voice perfectly, but it's still a very, very good novel. I think they made a movie out of it starring Glenn Campbell in, like, the 60s. Of course um, they did. Oh, my god! Who also played LaBeef in uh, True Grit in the first time. But uh, I didn't see it. I don't know. Uh, again, Norwood was long enough ago and three other Charles Portis wacky road trip novels ago, such that I couldn't tell you what happens in it exactly, <laughs> except for a really good bit. I think it's in Norwood. When he meets this other weird con man who has a chicken that's supposed to, like, be special, and they end up just going on a bus together. I think that's Norwood. Yeah, and that is. he just has weird stuff happens to him. Dog of the South is really fun. That's, that's, I have that as number four, and it is his second novel. Dog of the South, a guy's wife leaves him and runs into Mex- like runs away to Mexico with her ex-husband, and he goes off to get her. And he's very strange, too, our main character. Like, he has this audio tape of a professor giving a series of lectures about, I think, the Civil War. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, that he listens to, and he, he occasionally tells you about it. Like, he's excited when the professor at one point, like, imitates the birds that must have been in the clearing. And he's like, nobody yes. else could get away with doing this. It would be ridiculous. But it's just so wonderful. <laughs> like, is, is it? It might just be really weird. And he meets another con man who's got this elaborate series of schemes who I think might actually share a name with a Chesterton character, it occurs to me. Anyway... Uh, Dog of the South has some just truly great bits. I was first, I first decided to do this because Rosa Lister, who's a really great essayist, wrote about the Dog of the South, and I said, well, I'm gonna have to pick up all of Charles Portis now. Like, he's driving down the road, and he sees, like, a ten-year-old girl driving in a hot rod, and he just sees her, and she drives past, and then nothing else happens. And that's the way a lot of Charles Portis is. It's just a series of random encounters that all sort of combine to a vibe. And I think if you really picked it apart, you could come apart with some more interesting thematic resonance and some more interesting, like, repeated metaphors. And I just didn't do that, because it was just so much fun to read. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Three is Masters of Atlantis, which I think... I remember you saying that you didn't like it that much when you tried to read it. Masters of Atlantis is a little different, because it's not a road trip novel exactly. It's about a guy who ends up founding sort of an elaborate secret society, basically because another con man convinced him that there was such a secret society, and they end up publishing all these weird books and and being sort of loosely famous in the mid-20th century and then tapering off into obscurity. Uh, As somebody who grew up in a very Masonic family, uh, it was funny. Uh, (laughs) We'll leave it at that. I enjoyed it. So I had that as number three, and that is his third book. My number four is actually his last book, which is Gringos, which is the latest and I think greatest of the sort of contemporary road trip novels, also set mostly south of the border. Our guy in Gringos is a... He's just kind of a light... Like, he just kind of hangs out and occasionally drives people places, but he used to be basically a grave robber uh, for, like, old Mayan ruins, and he gets tangled up in an actual archaeological company, or, uh, like, like, is it a party? I don't mean like a incorporate corporation that are trying to do some stuff and also like a weird cult that is trying to go to an old Mayan ruin and like await the end of the world and all kinds of other weird stuff and that was very funny and weirdly violent in places in a way that he mostly isn't I really loved Gringos and then last is his most famous novel True Grit which is the only one that's a proper period piece and in that sense it feels a little strange because it's like a western whereas the rest aren't True Grit is perfect Maddie Ross is one of the great POV characters of all time. Yeah, she is. Uh, True Grit is perfect. And so I have that as number one. I, I will say, for in, in, de, in defense of Dog of the South being being really good, which I don't, you're not saying it's not, but I I, I loved that yeah, book. Yeah, no, they're all great. There's they're that, all great. <laughs> there's that great quote, which I had to look it up so I didn't get it wrong, where he's obsessed with like history of all kinds, like you said. But he has this great quote where he says, I don't believe we've ever had a president unless it was J- tiny James Madison with his short arms who couldn't have handled Dupree in a fair fight. 
<laughs> which I don't understand, like, the combination of, like, learning and sort of mental disease that would bring you to that crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> I just admire so much for some reason. <laughs> well, I think... I think here's how I'm going to talk about Charles Portis, and it's to tell a story about a funny thing that happened to me, because this is the experience, like, the only thing I could think of as this was happening to me was, I'm in a Charles Portis scene. And I remember sitting in a, a living room, and a person, we'd all been having a bit to drink, and this person looked at me and said, do you like Dave Grohl? You know, the, yeah. the drummer for Foo Nirvana Fighter, and yeah. the singer for the Foo Fighters. And I said, yeah, who doesn't like Dave Grohl? And she says, with absolutely no transition, do you think he has good moral intentions? <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea how to react to that. And that's the way Charles Portis conversations go, is your main character, who's weird but a little bit more of a straight man, meets somebody who talks like that. They, they will have a, a straightforward conversation, switch to something totally off-kilter and about, like, the nature of reality, and then switch back to talking about, like, raisins or something, you know? And that's, that's what Charles Portis is like. You you could almost put him in that 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 lineage of um, Harry Cruz, who's a Southern writer who's very violent and weird, and Flannery O'Connor, of course, kind of these yeah, these yeah. these catalogers of American um, eccentricities. You know what I mean? Like the way in which America has seemingly created a, a new kind of humanity at times. You know, you go to the certain a certain place in Americans, you know, America's soul. And it is a bunch of people who are saying the wildest things ever said. And there and there's so many of them, you know? And what's really great about Portis is I think he is not to be like too too moralistic or too cute, but like I think he is really good about saying, Well, my friend, you know, you are among them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're one of them. (laughs) There's a reason you keep finding yourself among them, and it's because you have the same thing. The book it made me think of the most, which is a book I haven't read since high school. I didn't like it in high school. I take no position on its quality now because 16-year-old Bill is not to be trusted with anything more complicated than a digital watch, right? But, like, yeah, remember a Confederacy I was of Dunces? Say, I knew exactly what you were going to say. Yeah. It, it, and it is. It's a great novel, by the way, it turns out. I'm sure it is. I, I Again, I haven't read it since I was 16. I don't trust that guy's opinion at all. But, like, that's the book. It, it made me think I should reread A Confederacy of Dunces yes. because just sort of the way stuff just happens to Ignatius Riley feels a lot like what happens in Charles Portis novels. No, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely think that book, and then you, I would put up there, um, Walker Percy's novels have a certain, mm, and he, sure. he's obviously more philosophical or, or whatever, but he's trying to be funny at least. He's not nearly as funny as Portis. Few people have been. I mean, you know, just about nobody. Yeah, I mean, like I, Mark, Mark Twain <laughs> was funny. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that kind level, of the though. level yeah. we're talking about. Like, <laughs> it's very hard. He's to sort hit. of. This is a random thought I just had. If Douglas Adams is the apotheosis of a certain kind of British humor, Charles Portis is the equivalent for a Southern United States humor. Like, they don't read the same at agree. all, right? They are completely different writers, yes. but they sort of embody a particular sense of humor. And Charles Portis is that sort of particularly Texan, like Southern, like just weird stuff happens and you have to sort of let it wash over you. I think they I think they have a, a similarity there as being sort of the spokesperson of a particular brand of humor. I completely agree. No, I think that's exactly right. So, okay, so other 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 books, Bill. There's more books. <laughs> well, I don't want to keep talking, but oh. there was somebody else I meant to talk about at the same time as Charles Portis. So, I'm going to do that now. Uh, and then I'm going to let Is you talk. Is it Cormac McCarthy? It's Cormac McCarthy. That's what I was going to ask exactly. you about. So, I I have read one Cormac McCarthy novel now and I read it this year. I read Blood Meridian. And uh 
Blood Meridian is not exactly my cup of tea, okay? Like, I think it's brilliant. I don't know as I love it. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, it is an incredible text. It is too much for me. For one thing, it is the most violent book I have ever read in my entire life. <laughs> and I want to be clear. I read horror. I read... I, <laughs> violence has to go pretty far to phase me. But about the third time, a rampaging horde of people showed up over the hills and did just unspeakably terrible things to everyone they ran into. Uh, with not, like, prurient detail, but a lot of detail. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, I get it, Cormac. I'm going to take a break. Uh, the writing is incredible. Uh, I, I hate that. The writing is incredible. What the hell does that mean? But, like, the language, right? Like, he's playing with... He's using this incredibly elevated language to describe this horrific violence and just, just mindless destruction, right? Both in the narration and particularly in the dialogue of the judge, Judge Holden, who is very loosely based on a real guy who we know, like, two lines of dialogue about, right? Yeah. But basically, there's this party of people who end up going down in the Mexican-American War and, and the lead-up to the Mexican-American War and basically just killing people, right? And it's sort of loosely sanctioned by the U.S. government, but not really. And our character, the kid, gets caught up in the middle of it. And it's not clear how much of the violence he participates in, but he's certainly around a lot of it. And Judge Holden is one of the great villains in, like, serious literary fiction. Uh, although I think he gets something wrong, which I'll talk about later. But uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian is, it's, it's like bringing, I don't know, the greatest wordsmith you've ever met to do, like, a pulp like Sweeney Todd. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yes. actually it's actually a little bit like having Stephen yeah. Sondheim do Sweeney Todd. Like a, it's not a good story, right? Like right, it's just a horrible right. violent story, but we got one of the great prose stylists of the age or like the, one of the greatest musical composers of all time to do it. And so it becomes elevated through going so far down it comes out the top end, right? And it's it's really something. Uh I again I don't love it, but the reason I wanted to talk about them both at the same time is because they're both very particular styles approaching the same geographical region, if not the same content at all, right? They're both about, like, the southern United States and Mexico, right? But also because... The other thing I did this year is I've started watching all the Coen Brothers movies in order. Yeah. And I'm not done yet. Uh, but I realized that the Coen Brothers are the intersection of Charles Portis and Cormac McCarthy. And, of course, that's a little bit pat because they have adapted both of them. They did an adaptation of True Grit, and they did an adaptation of No Country for Old Men, uh, which is another... Cormac McCarthy novel, but I think that's right. Like oh, they are whatever those right. guys have in common. Yeah. They have a weird sense of humor. They bring serious filmmaking chops for like weird pulp stories. I mean, from minute one, Blood Simple is just sort of a miscellaneous thriller, but it's made by the Coen Brothers, and so it's elevated into something else. They have these characters who will come in out of left field, be immediately memorable, not do any of the things you expect, and then wander off, and then occasional just shocking, horrible violence. <laughs> and so. It was kind of fun to do that project or start that project at the same time as I had read Charles Portis on my first McCarthy because there was all a big Venn diagram there. So there we go. Yeah, no, it's funny. So McCarthy actually, Joy Williams recently was, you know, Joy Williams is a great short story writer and one of my favorite short story writers and also a great critic when she's a critic. She recently called his kind of his usual style like um, liturgical and ecstatic, you know, which I think is perfect. That's yeah. exactly how he writes. It was kind of this biblical thumping revelatory sense of purpose. But, um, but actually because of that, um, I, I've read the road by him, which most people who like him say is his worst novel, <laughs> even though it was his popular yeah. novel. And then I started to read blood Meridian back in the day. I believe it was actually as early as Oxford when I started to read it. And it's like in college, you know, and, um, 
and I stopped. I actually stopped, and it was one of my first experiences of, like, I was barely aware of wanting to be a novelist. Like, I wanted to be a writer of some kind, you know? For a long time, I thought that was, like, stage stuff or screen stuff. But um, but I was barely aware of, like, wanting to be, like, a true literary or even, some, like, a prose writer, you know? And I, I stopped because I realized, like, there was, like, a an influence problem that was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, there was something that yeah. he was doing that I so wanted to be a part of that I actually felt like it was going to warp my own writing. Um, and I have that with a few people now. And like, I have it with some really random people. Like I actually, I kind of have it with like Patricia Lockwood. Like I think the way that she's funny. <laughs> yeah. Like the way that she's funny. Yeah. Like I can't, I actually, I don't read her work. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't follow her on Twitter. I don't do anything with her because there's there, again, I don't think I could ever approach how, how witty she is. Like she has her own aphoristic brilliance. So I'm not trying to say I'm like that, but it's more like, I am tempted into being like that in a way that I probably shouldn't be. Like I have my own style that does maybe overlap, but I think when there's certain people that they become like gravity wells, you know, where it's like, Oh, like I read too much Joyce in my MFA, right? Like, Oh, Ulysses, you know, it is the great novel about writing and yada, yada, yada. And it is, it's actually a novel about lists and Catholicism mostly. But after reading Joyce, I was ruined for like six months as a writer. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't get out of my own, stylistic hiccups um and i feel the same and so i I, i'm almost to the point where i i want to go through a mccarthy binge at some point in the next few years because i'm feeling more solid in who i am as a writer more and more or whatever but but even even now like as someone who's written a ton of stuff and i know exactly what i like to do he's one of those guys where like i I don't know he's like a gravity well you know i worry that like being close to him will sort of warp me whether i want to or not does does that's that's not crazy right (laughs) no i understand i mean he didn't do it to me but uh douglas adams actually not to bring him up again if i read douglas adams i try to write like douglas adams and i can't write like douglas adams yeah i am not funny in that way uh, and so I, but I, I try, like my brain tries to set up these like paragraph long jokes the way he does, but then I don't have a punchline and I just stare at the, <laughs> you know. so no, I, I agree. Like I can't, I, I actually, I have to do sort of a purgative after well, I a, read Douglas Adams. There's a weird way in which I think actually, I think sometimes those influences, what's really weird is the very thing you want to ape is actually what is suppressed by them. Right. So like my guess is that Bill and his, in his own groove, and I've, I've read you, you're funny. You know, you are funny, right? And you are you, you probably actually are a little Douglas Adams-esque as far as, like, the way you have wit. You know what I mean? Like, the kind of the, the jabs you hang on to the end of paragraphs. Um, but actually, those instincts, in my opinion, are most suppressed, for me at least, when I'm reading someone who, who does it in a way I will never quite do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. It, it's almost a frustrating experience because you feel like you should be able to learn from them because part of you is like them and will be like them when you're at your best imitation will actually prevent that from ever happening um and flannery o'connor is similar i had to, I had to give up flannery o'connor for a while because while because it was like you're too close to my weird supernatural funny gruesomeness that i can't you know like you're gonna yeah. i'm just gonna start doing bad flannery o'connor fiction um but yeah cormac mccarthy's on the list of writers i have to read at some point but i have like very carefully avoided. Although I, I actually, by the way, for the record, I liked the road. I mean, I read it in college, so I was an idiot probably, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. You know, I didn't hate it like everyone else does. I feel like. Yeah. Again, the only, the only McCarthy I read is blood Meridian this year. I'm very glad I read it. Uh, I, again, I, it didn't, I didn't love it, but I respect, I respect it. Like yeah. I get what it's doing and it's very good at what it does. And there are some stuff, there's some stuff in it that really sticks with me, but I also, and I'm not going to do it here, but I have a whole project. I, I, I have to read it again. But I have a whole thing where I think I want to write about a 
critique of Judge Holden and contrast him with Lewis's Unman from Paralandra. Interesting. Because they're both doing a similar sort of thing where, like, they're the worst of the worst of the worst and right. sort of flagrantly so and kind of eloquent. But the difference is Judge Holden is always eloquent, whereas when no one's watching the Unman, he just tortures frogs. And I think Lewis might have it right. That's that actually, sense? That's actually <laughs> one of, I actually think that's one of Lewis's best moments. But okay. But anyway, I'll, I'll need to reread both those books, and I'm not smart enough to write that essay. But maybe someday. Uh, you, oh yeah, you you could do it. It'd be fine. It's just Lewis and Cormac McCarthy. They're not giants. They're just a couple of guys who drink too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> okay. So um, I have more questions for you. You ready for more questions? <laughs> no, 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 no. You have to talk about books now. That's the way this works. This is a trade-off. This can't just be about me. <laughs> So, um, I, I mean, you have a lot of stuff that I, I want to hear about, but I picked a few out in particular because I thought you might not talk about them very much. Um, I want you to talk to me about Muriel Sparks, The Girls of Slender Means, because I read it two years, or I guess time is difficult with this podcast, right? Because <laughs> there's the current year, there's the year we're talking about, right. and there's whatever happened in the past. But I read it in 2021 and thought it was dynamite. Uh, you read it this year. I have some of your thoughts on a little note thing you sent me. Tell me about Muriel Sparks, The Girls of Slender Means. Yeah, I mean, so Muriel Spark is one of my favorite authors. I, I read The Prime of Mischief Brody at the end of my MFA program, which is now like five years ago. And it was one of those books, along with like Godric and Jesus' Son and some Tolstoy and some other stuff, Gene Wolfe stuff, actually, that kind of like, it was one of the, you know, it's one of those experiences of like, oh, okay, this is actually the complete package. This is someone who... I want to be like as a writer, but also someone who I love as a, as a reader, like both of them combined at the, at the highest level. And, um, she wrote the girls with Slender means right after prime machine Brody. I think it's the next book she wrote. It's not, it's very close to that. And for me, it's, it's a total spiritual sequel. Um, so prime, you know, prime machine Brody is about, you know, you know, kind of school, middle school, high school age girls kind of through their, their whole schooling time in some ways it jumps, it jumps between periods in their lives and it tells about their cohort and how they grow and stuff. And, and Girls with Slender Means are young women during World War II living in kind of like a women's only home, you know, also jumping through time and dealing with various like funny, tragic things. I won't actually ruin the, the ending because I think the ending does matter, but there's basically this, this big violent event that happens. But for me, honestly, yeah, I, my, my first reaction to it is my usual reaction to Miro Spark, which is that I want her to read it again. I just like her yeah. book so much, and I think that she's one of the few examples of someone who, um, you know, her, her, her novels are so short, and they pack such a punch. It's like she's written the only unedited short story that doesn't need to be cut down. You know what I mean? Like, everyone's short stories are, <laughs> yeah, everyone's short stories are too long, right? Your short story of 25 pages probably needs to be, like, eight pages half the time, right? That's, that's my experience, at least. But I feel like she's the one person who's like, I have this one really punchy idea, and I'm going to do it for 120 pages. And actually, instead of blowing it up beyond that or shrinking it, it's going to be exactly what it needs to be. The only person who does that as consistently, in my opinion, is Penelope Fitzgerald. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. I really I really like Girls with Under Means. I, I, for me, it's probably one of her top two books. Um, it has, I had this note in here that I forgot about until I, 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 I um, was listening to the book itself recently. It's a novel of like incredible soundscaping, you know. So there's a there's a mm, yeah. one of the characters reads poetry, and her her poetry often untagged sort of rings through the book and intersplices with dialogue. The ringing of the telephone um, from the future and tele telephone conversations from the present that you you don't always know which one is happening necessarily. Um, 
But I do. I think that there is just this transcendent shiver that runs through her best work, um, which I find so unbelievably um, inspiring, to be honest. But um, but yeah, I love that book. I love that book. I, I actually, it's on my list to like, I want to read a lot more Mural Spark this year, which was my goal last year and didn't really happen. And I think it, my, my hope is actually to start with Girls of Slender Means because it's like a, you read it in one sitting, you know, it's a oh, yeah, quick yeah. read. It really is a long, short story. But to start with that and to kind of go chronologically from there. But yeah, I will say one thing you've said about Spark, which is I've always felt as well, but um, she's vicious. She's yeah, she, she's mean. She is. Yeah. No, she is. She's a, she has an actual mean streak. And I do think in this book, she uses that to great effect at the very end where there's a huge incident that happens that you think is why certain events get knocked into place. And there's a small incident, which is actually so much more dirty and, yeah, kind of, again, vicious that actually I think is is what the book's about. But I, I won't get into it because, I, I, you know, it won't ruin the book. I just, I don't know. It feels sometimes wrong. Like, it's, it's such a short book. You could just go read it. You know what I mean? Like, this podcast probably takes as long to listen to as the book <laughs> takes to read. No, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But, um, yeah. All five or six Spark novels I've read are like 130 pages at most, you know. But yeah, no, she's she's brilliant. She's one of, she's definitely in my in my like my like tone poem of 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 Joel, you know. <laughs> the, th- the thing that I feel about, so I read I don't know, four or five Spark novels last year because they were short and I was trying to like, read 104 books. Did I mention that I read 104 books last year? Yeah, we're bringing the bit back, <laughs> baby. We're doing it. Now, uh it, the thing I, I had with a lot of Spark is it kind of dazzles me, so I walk out of it like that was incredible. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because yeah. I, I, I get kind of dazzled by just how incredible it is, and I'm laughing at every sentence or really enjoying it, and then I, I sort of walk out of it dazed, like I've, uh, you know, I've been uh, sort of intoxicated by it, and so I, I really want to go in with like a, like vivisectionist tools and take these books apart and really understand them in a way I, I haven't been able to do yet because um, they're just really very good, and and the Girls of Slender Means wasn't even my favorite I read last year. But it stuck with me in a way that some of the others that I even liked more when I read them did didn't. Yeah, does that makes sense. No, it does. Well, I, I agree. So I actually feel like I have taken apart Prime and Mystery and Brody somewhat, which is why it feels like this book is a spiritual sequel because they just they use time very similarly, to be honest. Yeah. Um, to create kind of this you know this this conflict. But I agree with you. Actually, my my first thought really was like. I need to read that probably to be honest a couple more times before I really start to like peel the skin back, which is always sometimes like it's hard. Cause like I had to read Prime Mission Mission Brody. I felt like four times before I started to do that. Cause I just enjoy it so much, you know, you yeah. just don't want to engage the brain too much. Um, but no, I, I, I was funny the, the the author that you just, the author that makes me think of what you just said, as far as like kind of, um, you know, needing to, uh, to, to kind of like you're, you're dazzled and you want to kind of, you know, go back in and just take some tools to the text. Um, for me, that's definitely been Gene Wolfe this year, actually, mm. is um, he's someone else who also caught me totally off guard. I read The Wizard Knight first as far as the first books of his I read. And then this year I read um, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, the, the three novellas, not just the first one that's titled that. And then I, I read um, his short stories as well. And I for me truthfully like um i i know what he's doing a lot of the time right until it's just it just goes into hyperdrive do you know what i mean like it's like okay i'm following this this is a great story about like a boy growing up who sees fictional characters who other people see and now what the what's up what's up <laughs> what's happening yeah. and that's like that's most of his stories you know um and i i really um i, I so I, I yeah the, the book that i read was the island of dr death and other stories 
and other stories. There's a joke in there about that. It's, it's, it's the actual title. But um, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but most of them remain in my mind in almost a dreamlike state. You know, I think back on them and they feel vivid. They feel present even when I think back on the stories. But a lot of the concrete elements escape me, which is why, you you know, you just got to reread them, which is you just got to reread them a lot. But um, but yeah, I loved his short stories. I mean, he's a great novelist. I knew that already. But like his short stories, Ursula K. Le Guin calls them some of the best in American literature, and and she's right. The best ones are so mind blowing, ima- mind blowingly imaginative, while still trying to like do this modernist project that's kind of you know Ford Maddox Ford meets Proust, you know, meets kind of a, <laughs> a, a meets kind of like a Dickensian coming of age story. Like he is, he's just very good at a lot of different things. And he's doing it all in a sci-fi mode, which I find just really endearing. Yeah, so I have, I think I have that same collection you read. No, no, I have something called The Best of Gene Wolfe. So I'm sure it's a lot of the same stories, but it's actually not that specific collection. And then I, I didn't read it last year, but I have started The Book of the New Sun, which is the one that's supposed to be his masterpiece. Right. And I'm taking it pretty slow. I'm only maybe 120 pages into it. But uh, yeah, it's it's real good. Like, it's, it's really it's good. <laughs> I know. absurdly good. It really is. The thing I've found... Well, since apparently this is a podcast about reading in order to be a better writer all of a sudden, <laughs> uh, is I read two or three chapters of Gene Wolfe and then I get off my butt and write. Yeah. Which is, I don't usually have writers like that. Sometimes I have a, a book which is so bad it makes me do that. I'm like, well, hell, yeah. I can do this. This is obviously not the case with Gene Wolfe. I know I'm not approaching Wolfian levels. But I read two or three chapters of the Book of the New Sun and I'm like, man, I got to go write my thing. Like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and... So it's been very good for that, if nothing else. But also, yeah, it's it's incredible. Well, no, he, we'll I, talk about it next year when I finish. I it. mean, I said I said it earlier, and, and you're right. This is kind of turning into like a weird writing podcast. <laughs> but I I do think that one of the one of my favorite phrases that an author told me years ago was, "It's really important to keep going back to the writers who give you permission." You know, and yeah. it's almost like a self help phrase. You know, and and the. The person who said it is like the opposite of that. So it's, I love it when like the gruff, mean teacher is like, here's some beautiful psychological wisdom that I probably got in therapy. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it really has stuck with me because um, ever since I've heard that phrase, it's been almost easier to kind of figure out who are the writers who like, I'm not sure I want to be like them. Like I actually don't feel a huge desire to be like Gene Wolfe in some ways. But some of the stuff he's doing, it feels like stuff I'm already attempting but he, he, more importantly, I feel like he gives me permission. You know, he gives me permission to like mix genres, to take risks, to play with memory however I want to play with it, and to also at times like there's a way that you can be very highly literary without necessarily um, just being pretentious. You know, like I think there are people who definitely would accuse Gene Wolfe of being pretentious, but I actually think there's a way in which he's just like a hound sniffing after his own unconscious, you know, like impulses. You know what I mean? Like, and he somehow yeah. is welding those into stories. And I think there's a real wisdom in that, a real like wisdom in like taking all of your learning and putting it to the side and just like kind of hounding after whatever weird story you have. Um, but for me, it's like, it's a really weird Pano, you know, kind of panoply of people or whatever. It's like it, it's you know, it's him, Muriel Spark, Dennis Johnson, not even all of Frederick Beekner, just his book Godric. Like these are the books that give me permission. I feel like, and what's really nice is is finding new people as you get older. Like Gene Wolfe again, I found him recently. You know what I mean? Like, and I think The Wizard Knight did some of that for me, but actually, I I liked Fifth Head of Cerberus better. Like it, it you know, yeah. I mean, I love like I, it's like Gene Wolfe. Like I love all of him, so it's hard to say that. 
But Death Head of Cerberus truly split me open and also gave me that kind of permission, like you said, to get back to the, to the, to the typing, you know? I do. Yeah, well, unlike you, I, I do want to write Gene Wolfe. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to, so I'm going to have to be careful. He's, he's a writer who could end up being the sort of Cormac McCarthy, Douglas Adams yeah. thing we're talking about to right. me. But uh, at least for the, my current project, he's the right guy to have in my head. So I don't know. I feel so silly talking about me as a writer because me as a writer is an occasionally minor essayist who like writes fiction no one reads at home. Uh, whereas you've actually published fiction. I guess I, I have technically published two short stories. Yeah, but it's, no, it's, I mean it's, it's got like a big old asterisk on I, it. I feel like we're in the same boat. I feel like at this point though, I at some point like I really again this is not meant to be a writing podcast, but welcome to our writing podcast called the Big Right, which actually <laughs> means like I don't know. There's a joke in there about being right, but. Um, for me, I feel like I, I really have gone to that really like workmanlike mentality of I've written a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, and actually you, you have too. I think I know a lot of people who want to be writers and they've written not just like your published essays, which you're actually, you know, have written a lot of that, but like you've written a way more fiction than most people who say they want to be writers, you know? And at some point for me, it was, it is this mentality of like, I don't know. Like I, you almost, I don't know. I don't know. This is how where you are. Maybe not. I almost get tired of like. There's a way in which the reverence can just hold you back, you know. And it's not just. It's not just in the same sense that Harold Bloom talks about, you know, the anxiety of influence. At some point, it's like I'm 35. I've read a ton. I've written a ton of bad stuff and some very good things, and not in the balance that I wish it was. And at some point, it's like, I don't know. It's like, I'm going to die, you know? I'm going to die at some point. <laughs> and I have, like, I have this chance or I or nothing. And so, I don't know. For me, I feel like more and more, I, I don't care how much I have published or don't. Like, I write a lot. I think you're similar to me, honest. Like, we are correct about a lot of things. Even if we, you know, the idea of, like, having credentials to back it up. I guess I'm just, I'm so far past that idea at this point in my head. You know what I mean? Where, like, I don't feel bad anymore being like, yeah, uh, John Steinbeck, congrats on your Nobel Prize and a couple of, you know, really good books. Like, Grapes of Wrath is garbage. And I, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't, you know, or Jonathan Franzen, like, I actually don't think he's as bad as people think he is. But, yeah, f- freedom is a little one-dimensional. Like, the corrections is way better. And I, like, that's what I think, you know? Anyway, we're off, we're way off in the weeds. Um Gene Wolfe is great. We both love him. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's unbelievably good. Um I uh, I mean, we read The Wizard Knight this year, and we already had a whole podcast about it, so I'm not going to talk about it much. But, like, The Wizard Knight, man. Like, and it's not even your favorite wolf you've read. And, and I, I mean, Book of the New Sun, I can tell you it's incredible so far. It's probably not going to actually displace The Wizard Knight for me personally as, like, favorite. It's probably a better book. But uh, The Wizard Knight is... It's just very important to well, me. Well, this is actually um, why I, I love Gene Wolfe partly, too, is I actually think it's the first writer for almost different reasons that we've both had like a similar reaction to, you know, like, I think we like a lot of the same stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like Susanna Clark would be a great, a great, a great example. Um, I love, I love, you know, know, I I love everything she's done. Right. Um, Paranasi most of all, but I think that she, she got to you in a way she didn't get to me as a writer and maybe as a person, you know what I mean? Like, like, like she's one of my favorite writers, but it wasn't quite the same level of like hit and same with like, okay, Kristen Lovren's daughter or something. That book totally got to me to the point that I want to reread it all the time. But I mean, you liked it. It was a good book, but it, you know, whatever. The point is, I think Gene Wolfe actually weirdly hit us on some of the same notes, but almost for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I mean, Wither Knight was one of my favorite fantasy novels and it made me, it made me a Gene Wolfe fan for life. 
But I think the reaction that you had to Wizard Knight, I, I had to Fifth Head of Cerberus, you know, which is a totally different kind of project. And I, I do, I don't know, I like that there's an author out there who can kind of weirdly, as much as we seem to overlap, we're very different. And someone out there who can actually grab both of us by the lapels and, you know, shake us into writing, that's, I don't know, I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Well, you know. Also, he gave us Pringles, so he oh, was perfect. Thank you for Pringles, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to. One, I don't want to uh, talk too much. The one more, th- one, one more person I thought of in talking about fantasy is I discovered Guy Gabriel K this year. I don't know how to say his name. Gabriel. I don't know how to say his name, but um, he's a big deal, right? Like he's a very famous fantasy author who, of course, I'd basically never heard of because that's how I roll. Um, but I read his his book Tigana, which is sort of like. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of like pre-Renaissance Italy <laughs> um, in a fantasy world. And the fantasy is very, very muted. But um, he's immediately one of my favorite kind of – he's not like a comfort read per se, but he is a really intelligent, um, enjoyable read, which is not doing him justice. But like I, what I say in my notes to myself is like he's writing a completely different kind of book, but he kind of he kind of um, scratched that P.D. James itch I have for like – the highest, yeah. the highest form of something very kind of like almost, yeah, almost pulpy, almost escapist without actually being escapist. Um, but he really surprised me this year. And actually, I think you would like him a lot, to be honest, Bill. So I've heard of him uh, sort of loosely around the edges, but I couldn't tell you anything about him. And I've never read any of his stuff. So I was curious because he's one of those names that like I should get around to at some point. You know, like he was a bigger deal, I think, in the 90s and early 2000s than he is now. And I found that that's sort of a forgotten age for fantasy and sci-fi. Nothing is obviously less popular than what was popular five minutes ago. That's just true of everything, literally everything. (laughs) But like Connie Willis, of course, was from that same time frame. And she, I mean, I love Connie Willis so much. And uh, Kay, I think, I think that's right. I think he's like late 90s, 2000s, right? And I'm, and you're like, uh, Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell, of course, is I think 2004, right? And so I've been kind of, he's been on the list of somebody I should get around to eventually. But like... Yeah, it's like Renaissance stuff mostly, right? Like sort of a different time yeah. frame than you usually get in fantasy novels. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's really honestly what what caught me off guard um, is how immediately um, skilled he is at kind of interweaving the the world building with his characters. Like I know it seems obvious for fantasy, but there's not a lot of fantasy that I've read where I haven't been kind of put off by like now let's take four seconds or my, I mean, my first, like four pages to explain exactly how the world works. You know, there's, there's never any of that with him. And yet you get this super rich detailed world. I mean, he is doing, people have accused him. Like he is doing historical fiction with just like some fantasy stuff for fun almost. But the book is really, 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 really good. And um, what's really nice about him that I keep thinking is like, I went, I liked it so much. I was like, Oh, I should read all of his books. And I went back to reread his first novel and I, I don't like it at all, (laughs) 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 but I actually, I think the rest of his books are probably good, but like he, um, the first few books he wrote are kind of dealing with like, you know, people go through a portal into a different world. It's kind of a Tolkien esque world they go into. And, um, it honestly reads like the kind of stuff that I threw away when I was in high school and college, you know, like when you, like we talk, yeah. like when you first read Tolkien and you want to write your own, go to Narnia, but it's Tolkien 
novel, which I think most people try and write. And so it, it probably gets better as the, it's like three or four novels. Um, it probably gets better as you read them. But I actually, it was one of the first times where it was like, Diana was so good, I have to read everything. And then it was kind of reassuring to be like, oh, right, he didn't, he was not great at first, actually. You know, like you can see where, you can see where all of his skills will develop, you know, kind of the, the shifting perspective, perspectives between characters, um, the balance of like friendship and, you know, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But like, it was also kind of nice to, to read a failure for once. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually so. I, I did I did all of Connie Willis between last year and this year, or not all of it, but all the novels and most of the novellas. And like her first novel is this weird sort of throwaway YA thing she did with a buddy of hers, and it's it's fine. Like it's not terrible, right. but it really was freeing. I was like, yeah, this woman wrote Doomsday Book yes. and Passage, and this is her first book. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's hope for me. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. <laughs> well, no, it's, I mean, seriously, it, I, I actually, I remember saying in, in the podcast, and I've said this before, but like, I remember the resounding silence after I said it, <laughs> especially from Christy, our friend, who's a Connie Willis diehard. <laughs> and I, and I feel like I am too, to be honest, like she's one of my favorite authors, but I remember saying like, I kind of love a Connie Willis because she's written a few of my favorite books of all time and books that I don't think are very good, you know? Yeah. And what's beautiful is that with literature, like it's not sports. There's not, it's not, there's not an aggregation element to being great. Like she has always written Doomsday Book and Passage, which I actually think for you and I are, I think we're both agreed actually, those are her best books. Um, but for me, like, yeah. you know, the, like the literary present tense almost kind of negates other stuff, right? Like you talk about books in the present tense when you write about them. And the idea of Doomsday Book, like it can't be overshadowed for me by anything else. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't really care about a short story here or there or you know, Bellwether wasn't that bad, but like Bellwether or something, right? I, I don't care if it's not as good yeah, as Doomsday really Book. Yeah, I don't yeah. either. But like, but Doomsday Book isn't marred by that. You know, it gets to exist yeah. still on its own terms without any sort of like overshadowing element. No, like I can respect somebody like Ted Chang who's never missed in his life, oh but gosh. like you don't have to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't even think it's literally true. No, his weird not. little story about parrots wasn't great. Although that was, and a story about like the the people who. Is it surgery or no? It's like a software hack to see everybody is no longer pretty. That's not very good. And he actually agrees. He he actually refused a nomination for that because he didn't think it was very good. I think he's um, right. Well, I actually also think his story about like the guy who becomes limitless or whatever that has some issues. Yeah, for that me one's too. fine. But it's fine. Overall, yeah. Ching, yeah. Well, he's got he's got to have the best batting average in science fiction for short stories, though. I mean, because those might be all the ones that aren't like incredible. We may have like, named <laughs> them. No, you're right. We may we have may named have. them. No, you're right. Yeah, because it's not so that he has good short stories. He has like the best sci-fi short stories, period. And then I and think then, if you held a gun to my head, I would say Ted Chang is the greatest short science fiction short story yeah, author. I mean, I will say honestly, there, I I think I think I agree. That some of these Gene Wolfe stories blew me away, but I think yeah. I think part of it is that you're right. That Gene Wolfe is actually so prolific. That he 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 can't help but have some of that Victorian issue of like, whoops, I just I just kept writing that day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> should have stopped that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What about you, man? So I feel like um I feel like we've talked about some books you've read, but we're on the sci-fi topic. Um, were there any standout sci-fi fantasy books for you this year? Yeah. So I hit some more fantasy, more com- contemporary fantasy this year. What, yeah, I've been trying to catch up on some. Um. There's a couple I didn't I read and didn't care for as much, but I didn't I don't have anything interesting to say about them, so I'm not going to say anything, right? I was just like this book was fine, and people like it more than I do, but who cares, right? 
But Bill, there's a few I want to. I want point you to start yeah. some literary feuds. I feel like you keep backing off of that, <laughs> and it's not. I've called Michael Moorcock out like 800 times. Oh, it's not my fault. He's too scared to change. He doesn't know who I am. But like, <laughs> all right, too yeah, Keep going. I'm sorry. Also, I've read again, as I've said again, I've read one Michael Moorcock short story collection. I don't really get to have that. I guess I'm backing off of a feud now. I guess See, I, are you all right? You ready? I'm gonna. I wasn't gonna do this. I'll do one. You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Moir. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> wow how damning <laughs> people talk about it like it's the best i mean nobody i don't think anybody really thinks it's the greatest fantasy novel ever but like it's got this kind of fun premise it's lesbian necromancers in space and like yeah sure i'm on board but like it does all this weird tumblr language like gideon at one point she nopes out of a room that's a quote oh, and geez. That can work under certain circumstances. I don't mean to say it can never work, but it's too much of it. And the setting doesn't really make any sense in the first book. There's two more that I'm not going to read. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's like it wants to be really sort of funny and sort of cute and sort of Tumblr-esque, but then it can't commit to that entirely. It also occasionally wants to do a sort of, frankly, almost Wolfian, like sort of as a grand sort of autarky behind it that we're sort of overshadowed by, but it right. can't balance these two tones and it, it it's fine. Like, you know, it's not terrible. I'm not gonna say that. But it's fine is what it is. It's fine. Uh so there, that's a literary feud. Tam's and Weir. <laughs> she's fine. On notice. Maybe the other maybe the other two are great. I don't know. <laughs> but uh the one I did really enjoy is Scott Lynch. Uh he's written three novels out of what's supposed to be seven, although he's in the sort of George R. R. Martin, Patrick Rothfuss can't write anymore. He's actually been going through some, like, rough times and has some mental health issues, I think, so I don't want to make fun of him. But there's supposed to be seven in this. There's been three. I've read the first two last year, and that's The Lies of Loch Lamora and Red, Skis, Red Seas Under Red Skies. And the third one is called The Republic of Thieves, I think. The first two are dope as hell, and there are a lot of reasons for that. The first is because in his introduction, he says he really likes Fritz Leiber, and then the first line of the short of the book is very much channeling Fritz Leiber. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I like Fritz Leiber. Fritz Leiber? <laughs> uh, yeah, Fritz Leiber. Did you know that? Uh, and they are both really, really fun. Uh, and they're a little too long, and they've got some... They're both really good. Uh, Lies of Lacamora, the first one, is probably better. It's like a heist novel, sort of got that vibe, but with like real dangerous stakes underground. Yeah. Like, if you piss off the Mages Guild, they will not just kill you, it will hurt the whole time. And like... it's So it's got some of that pulpy fantasy you know, I don't know, silliness, right? We're like, yeah, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to put you in a bag full of glass and punch you until you die, right? Which is like too much, right? But he, <laughs> he does it right, right? Yeah. He does it in such a way where you're like, yeah, I hate this guy. He does this. He puts people in bags of glass and punches them a bunch. What a monster. <laughs> and it, it does the right level of making fun of it while also making it very clear that if our hero isn't very careful, he's going to be fed to sharks. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, and it's going to be bad. He's got a great sense of humor and I don't know I found both of the sort of heists very persuasive and also our characters get the heck beaten out of them in these stories like they are very human they're both incredibly good right Locke Lamore is the best liar in the world uh, his buddy Jean is like the biggest badass in the room but like if there's three people in the room Jean's gonna have a rough time right, right? like he can probably take anybody one-on-one but he sure can't take anybody three-on-one and that's you know, so much fantasy now is sort of video game logic, right? Yeah. Where, like, I'm level 20 and you're level 5, so I can kill 100 of you. And that's fine. Like, there, there's a place for that, too. But um, he really gets that Fritz Leiber thing where, like, yeah, Fafford and the Grey Mauser are the scariest people around, but 
there's one each of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of things that are actually much scarier. When I say they're the scariest thing around, I mean the, the biggest, baddest thing of this sort of, like, forgotten underclass of rogues. And if they ever really get the attention of the movers and shakers, they're going to be ground into a fine paste. And Scott Lynch really hits that with these two books. And they're just, they're just a riotously good time. I, I, I had so much fun with both of these books. Um, and they're, you know, they're well-written. You know, he, he's good at what he does. Um, I hope he keeps writing them. Uh, not because I have to know what happens next exactly. It's not that kind of book series. Right. But just because I, I want to be able to keep giving him money. Because I really appreciated these first two books. And I'm looking forward to the third. Well, you, you, read, some, you read some Fritz Leiber this year, too, I believe. I did. So I reread the first three Fafford and the Grey Mauser collections. Because I was going through all of them on my Substack. And then I paused my Substack because I was applying for jobs and hoping to get out of my current uh, spot, which is taking forever because that's how these things work. Uh, not because I'm getting no's, but because they're just taking six weeks to get back to me. Yeah, that sounds so, right. You know, which is fine. People should do whatever they want. Um, so I reread those, and I'm going to finish reading them next year. I, this year, I hope. But I also read two separate Fritz Leiber novels, and these are actually the first Leiber novels I've read that, except for the one Fafford and the Grey Mauser novel, which is different. Uh, I've read some other short stories here and there. They're both really strange. Uh, Library is such a weird mix of, like, all of the worst parts of, like, 40s and 50s fantasy and sci-fi writing. Like, sort of the, the... The joke somebody said on Twitter is that if you read a Bradbury short story collection, you'll read one short story, which is just, like, profoundly observed art about the human condition with incredible language. And then another one, which is, like... Gee willikers, Jake, we better get the ray guns out or they're going to smash us, you know? And that's that's not word for word. It was funnier in the original tweet. And Fritz Leiber's like that, where... So Conjure Wife is one of the ones I read, which is this very strange story, which opens with this long sort of 50s, I don't know, like B-movie sci-fi thing where, like, a man discovers his wife is a witch and he, like, says, now... Now June, I can't remember what her name is, but you know, now Jane, you have to quit falling for these ridiculous superstitions. It's like she's like, of course, dear, you're right. But then he complexifies it because the point of view is our guy, but like the guy is clearly ridiculous, and Fritz Leiber knows it, so he's doing the trope, but he's also making fun of the trope. And then it turns out that all of the wives of the faculty at this liberal arts college are witches. <laughs> that's pretty good. And at first it's because they're just helping their husbands' careers, but then later on that's probably not actually everything that's going on. It's a really strange text. I'm not really going to come out swinging for it exactly, although I enjoyed it. But then I read The Big Time, and The Big Time might be perfect, but it is difficult. Yeah. It is a very weird little book. Uh, it's basically a stage play. You know, it's one of those great, right. like, 50s and 60s things where they just throw a bunch of different people in a room and let them bounce off of each other, and then the story ends, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's about these people who are caught up in this temporal war between these two factions, and the temporal war drastically rewrites history all the time, but our heroes are out of it. Not heroes. They're not heroes. Our characters are out of it. They're in the big time. They're not in the little time, right? And, like, you realize that our side, the, quote, the good guy's side, quote, have, like, annihilated like the United States and big parts of Rome because it helps them in some sort of grand cosmic game, which is not just with Earth, but it's all of reality. And so it, like, moves the needle slightly to instead have, like, the Nazis win. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it ends up being slightly Jeez. good for their side. Uh, our main character is like a like a flapper, basically. I forget exactly when she's from, but like a, like a party girl who's like a basically a prostitute to take care of the soldiers who come back from the Temporal War, right? It's not entirely clear if she literally has sex with these guys or not, but that she's still sort of a entertainer, right? Yeah. And these different guys show up, and, like, the soldiers fighting for our side include, like, 
an actual Nazi, among other things, right? And the Nazi's the one our character has a crush on, but he also is abusive to her. And so it's very clear this isn't a good thing, right? Like, our main character is not right all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's a very strange, complicated text that if you gave it to a Tumblr team, they would just explode. Just just burst (laughs) into flame. Um... And it deals with so much of the things Fritz Leiber... Like, Fritz Leiber is always very interested in this sort of battle of the sexes thing, which is one of those things that is very boring, except he's such a good writer that it isn't anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. you actually sort of get back into, like, oh, right, domestic dynamics between men and women in the 50s were weird. And, like, now we tend to think of that as just, well, you should have quit oppressing the women, and that's true, right? But, like, there was still an interesting dynamic there that no, was there strange. Were, yeah, well, the, the, Do you know what I mean? Well, like, the battle of the sexes is it, literally like, like relational power, right? Like, yeah. And, like, that's a big part of Conjure Wife, too, is, like, who actually has the power in this relationship and why and how do they use it. But, like, the big time is, and it's, there's all these great monologues. You know, a character stands up, sort of tells what their whole deal is and sits down. It's one of those kind of stories, yeah. right? And they're all very good. And I really found the point of view character really convincing in a way I was not expecting. I did not think Fritz Leiber could write a sort of world-weary 1920s party girl as his main character. I would not have said he could do that. And I at least thought he pulled it off great. And... Uh, I don't know. The big time. I'm gonna have to reread it. But I was sending. I was sending so many screenshots from it into our group. Yeah. Chat well, they were great. So I was like, no, they what were is so this? Good. <laughs> like, there's a great bit where she says, "I'm not gonna get it quite. I'm gonna look it up. Give me just a minute." Yeah. So he has this bit where he's he's briefly trying to describe how, like, the metaphysics of the world work, right? Like, just the cosmology of it, because you have this sort of place outside of time. But he doesn't do it in a normal way. He has his main characters say. The place is strictly on the big time, and everybody that should know tells me that time traveling through the big time is out. It's this way. The big time is a train, and the little time is the countryside, and we're on the train, unless we go out a door. And as Gertie Stein might put it, you can't time travel through the time you time travel in when you time travel. (laughs) That's so good, because it tells you enough about the way the the physics of it work that you sort of understand, okay, this is outside of time but in a different, in a way that's confusing. And it shows you that our main character doesn't really understand how this works either. And it has, to my untrained eye, a pitch-perfect Gertrude Stein parody. Oh, perfect. No, <laughs> absolutely perfect, yeah. Well, I, I, it is well, and also such a weird book. Well, also even the classic, like, 20s thing of, like, calling her Gertie, it's, it's good, to be honest. Yeah, it's just great. I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a really, really impressive book that nobody who writes or reads science fiction now wants to read. Uh, another thing is I would pay 100 US dollars at least to hear what Gretchen Falker Martin thinks about this book. I just want to like find out because she's either going to hate it or she's going to love it. And I want to know. Does that make sense? No, I, yeah, actually it does. You, 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 you could, you could pay her and see, and see. <laughs> I, I, I might be able to make that happen. Uh, I don't know. Gretchen, I don't think you listen to our podcast. And also I shouldn't call you Gretchen. We're not on first name terms, but read Fritz Leiber's the big time and tell me what you think. And I'll, but pay you a little bit. I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> we'll we'll pitch you. I'll pitch in. <laughs> no, so I was gonna. I mean, so I I have some more specific texts I want to ask you about. But I I on, on the switches to sci-fi, I have two quick comments, and then I, I have a, a a bigger question. I realized that it was this year we read Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, yeah. That's a book that maybe has um, actually stayed exactly where it started in my, in my brain. You know what I mean? Like we talked about on the podcast that it might really fade or grow. But actually, it turns out it stayed exactly where it was, which is like I remember a lot of her brilliant metaphor stuff and a lot of her brilliant, um, you know, jumping back and forth stuff. But uh, truthfully, yeah, it, it didn't make a huge impression, but also it didn't make a bad impression. Um, 
And then the this, actually you're talking about all the sci-fi stuff, the this has grown in my estimation, actually. Um, yeah. I think the this by Adam Roberts was, was even better than I realized, um, despite our, our fawning podcast. But uh, we've done a lot of like sci-fi fantasy talk, which made me think, like, w- when you look back on it, you know, is there any kind of uh, through line that you see in your reading this year? Or I'd say there's a few things. One thing I really did last year, this year, however you want to say it, is, like I said, try to catch up on some more contemporary fantasy. I read... Um, fantasy and sci-fi. I didn't read all of it by any means. Um, but I read, you know, Scott Lynch. I read Tamsin Weir. I read Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which I enjoyed. I don't have much more to say about it. It's definitely squeak horror, which is fine. I don't know if that necessarily means it's bad, but it is absolutely a squeak horror novel. Um, and I read, like, Octavia Butler's not actually brand new, but it's the 90s. I read The Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. It didn't I was really looking to be blown away, and it didn't, and that's probably my fault, because the short story of hers I read, um, Bloodchild, Bloodchild is, is incredible. No, that's, it's better. I've, I've, I've only read the uh, Parable of the Sower, but it is better than Parable of the Sower, for sure. When I think Parable of the Talents is better than Parable of the Sower, it goes... Like, I think it's a two-volume novel, and I didn't quite realize that. Parable of the Talents, more stuff happens, and I think it's better. Um, I, it's In some ways... People have said that it's the most believable dystopia of all, like, the great dystopias of the last 50 years, and I think it's there's some truth to that. Hmm. There's some sort of Handmaid's Tale stuff that happens in Parable of the Talents, and it's horrible. It's brutal. But, like, Handmaid's Tale is a great novel. It's also not possible, right? Right. Like, you, you can't get there from here. Uh, you can get to some bad stuff. Like, I'm not saying that, but you can't get to that from here. Yeah, right? yeah. And I don't know if you could have from 1985 or whatever either. You could absolutely get to Parable of the Talents <laughs> from here. <laughs> um. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, so I enjoyed it. Uh, it's also, I think that the Octavia Butler Parable of the Sword, Parable of the Talents is what all of the YA dystopian writers are trying to do. I don't know if they know that. Uh, and it's not YA, I'm not saying that. But it's got a similar sort of very heavily in mostly a teenager and like young 20s person's head as she writes about this horrible stuff and her sort of weird, occasionally naive, occasionally very prescient approach. And I, I think Butler does a very good job of not making it clear that she's not saying Lauren is always right. You know, this is just what the way this right. one person goes through the world. And she complexifies it, particularly in the second with uh, Lauren's daughter who comes to meet her later in life for very complicated reasons. You know, it didn't, it wasn't raised by her and has very complicated feelings about her. Like she, so she makes it much more complex than some of the sort of stuff I'm talking about. But like all of those YA dystopia novels, I think are trying to be Octavia Butler. And the mistake they've made there is they're not Octavia Butler. <laughs> Even though I didn't love these books as much as I was hoping to, like, is is very, very it, good. It happens like, to a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so like I said, I, I caught up on some of that stuff. The other thing is I did some Civil War reading. So we already talked about Grant a whole bunch. I already talked on the last podcast about how I read McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. I also read The Siege and Reduction of Fort Pulaski by General Quincy Gilmore which is a report on how they took Fort Pulaski. And I'm not going to talk to you about it a lot. But, yeah, I read, you know, primary source Civil War stuff more than once last year. I mean, that's... Those are my main three. I was going to say, that doesn't (laughs) surprise me at all. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually waiting for more is why I paused. I was like, I think there was something up. But, no, you're right. That was... I realized, actually, looking at your list, that I... I didn't count at least very. I, I I at least didn't count one book in my own counting. I didn't count the Wizard Knight Companion, which I definitely mm, read yeah. all of. Um, which actually, that's honestly, but that kind of forgetfulness or lack of reading it, that's almost honestly the theme of my year. Where like, I read a lot of big books, I guess, besides also not reading as much as usual. But it was a weird year. Like I I started and stopped more books than I ever have. You know, like I read 
maybe even like two thirds of um, Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, and I loved it. I wanted to finish it, but I just I just put it aside for now. I read a good chunk of Music, a Subversive History by Ted Joya, which I liked the first part. Actually, it got kind of annoying, so I stopped it on purpose. But there were several other ones. Like I was reading a Lauren Isley collection. I'm about I'm still at this point like halfway through a um, one of the collected editions of Chekhov stories. And there's like two or three more. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. so it was a weird year of not finishing stuff. Some of those books I will finish this year slowly. Um, but I also, there's a lot of kids books I read that I didn't record. Like I, and here I've, I have a few kids books that I, I kind of put down cause they were important for my family, but actually we read several Roald Dahl books and I actually, Roald Dahl is one, one of those people who I feel like a lot of folks hate um, cause he is, he just, he, he hates people. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a jerk. Yeah. That's a fact. Well, he was yeah. a terrible person, but even like in his writing actually, like, you know, I think some of his writing is, oh, is yeah. truly, um, he just hates people. He's a true misanthrope. But what's hard is actually, I think his stories that are geared not just at children, but at younger children are better than um, what I expected. I actually loved them. So like the magic finger, which I've heard no one ever talk about. It's basically a short story, but it's a little novella and the collection of his books you can get. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And it's very against you eating ducks and geese. <laughs> and Oh, yeah. You've told me about yeah, this one. And, yeah. And yeah. Okay. Fantastic <laughs> Mr. Fox is similar. Fantastic Mr. Fox is like this weird, you know, like vegetarian tirade almost. But it's a beautiful, funny book, um, as is The Giraffe and Pelly and Me and Essio Trot, like these kind of shorter um, younger chapter books. That's all I've read by him as an adult. Um, and they're really good. I mean, I, I get how a few of these could even be a little, a little nasty, but the ones that are clearly nastiest, I feel like you can tell from the cover and you just, you just don't read those ones, you know? Um, but there's a lot of books like that, that like we've read, we've read maybe a few more chapter books than I, I didn't, didn't capture, but it was a weird year. It was a weird year of reading. And I, 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 I wish I had read a lot more and I wish the books I had read had kind of had stayed with me even better, to be honest. So I wanted to ask you about that a bit. So your oldest child is what? Six? Five. Yeah. Five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think she was actually just born when the podcast, our first podcast. Yeah, came out. she was. <laughs> um, so I wonder, you wrote, and I'm, you know, I'm not asking you to turn this into Joel's parenting hour. Yeah, and I'm yeah, certainly yeah. not asking you to give details about your kids, no. which you, you're very good about not doing in public, <laughs> but like, so you've been introducing this child to like, longer texts right yeah. like you, you say that in one of your uh uh book journal things you gave me you sent me it's like what is that process like, like i don't have kids right, right. and I, you know like what is it like to try to switch from dr seuss who's wonderful to be clear but you know from dr seuss to something a little bit more i don't say serious but like complex maybe you know and, and longer like what is that process like you know honestly it's it's been really fun overall what's what's hard partly is that we still have the three-year-old who, who's reading with with us every night, you know? And so it's been hard. Yeah. Like you, you don't want to leave him behind completely, you know? And also my theory with parenting is I, I always thought, okay, I thought my kids would come out of the womb and they'd be like, welcome to earth. Here's a Silmarillion. You know what I mean? Like, let's, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> but honestly, what I found is that. That's kind of what my parents did for the record, but I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I, I had some of that. And I actually, like, I think I'm probably going to do more of that. Um, in the next year or two, I think it's going to start to be kind of unloaded. But truthfully, like what I've come to realize is there, it, there's really short windows for kids liking certain things. So like kids actually only like picture books for a very short time of their life, you know, and there are a lot of good picture books. And so for me, it's this weird, it's this weird idea of like in three years, Annabelle 
my oldest kiddo will still like she's gonna get the full experience of Narnia even if I read it now she's gonna get it later to be honest whereas in three years she's not gonna care as much about some of the picture books we're reading right so one of the pic- yeah. one of, so one of the transition um, authors for me I think is I actually don't know that I can say his name right but he wrote Shrek it's William Steig William Steig um, hmm. He writes some of the best like picture books that are long. So like Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, I love that book. It's great. Um, similarly, like I can't, I can't, I feel bad. I can't remember who wrote it, but Maurice Sindak, um, he illustrated um, a, a little a little chapter book kind of short stories called The Little Bear, and they're great. They're and they're meant to be transitional. And there's a whole category out there called easy readers, which are mostly garbage. But so for me, I, I it's actually been a, a real intentional effort to not go into the deep end, you know, which is what I thought I would do. Right. I thought I would kind of like be full deep end immediately. And I worry that sometimes I'm not being deep enough with Annabelle, but truthfully, I I just feel like there's there's this very short window where like, she's not, you know, quite reading books to herself yet. And once she does, I think the deep end will find her, you know, like I'm not going to really hold her back. Um, but it's been honestly, I will say. So I, 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 I keep kind of coming back to the same points, maybe too much. But it's been really fun because there are books that I don't remember reading that, of course, we, we've discovered. But because I've been so intent on finding like really, really good age-appropriate books, there's text that I just never knew about. Like I didn't realize the guy who wrote Shrek is a great children's author, but he's one of the best. Um, and similar with Roald Dahl. Like I, I didn't know Roald Dahl. Kind of, I didn't know his younger books at all. Like Giraffe and Pelly and Me, never heard of it, you know. But it's really, really fun. Um, so yeah, that's been good, but I am, I am kind of, I mean, there's still part of me that's like, you know, okay, when, when, when is the Hobbit going to come out? You know, like what night, (laughs) what night am I going to be like, no more? (laughs) It's, it's time. (laughs) Well, I, I have joked to myself, I don't think I've ever said this out loud, that if I ever have kids, it will be solely for the purpose of reading the Kipling just so stories to them at some point. And then they can do whatever they want at that point, you know? (laughs) So actually that's, that's one of the transitional kind of books we've been reading is just so stories. I, I, again, I actually didn't read those as a kid or if I did, I don't don't remember them because I was probably like two and my older siblings were being read to or something. But I, there, I remember you loved them, which is part of why I got them. And they are, they're really, really good. Just make sure you read them to yourself first. Cause there's a few of them that you'll need to explain. No, you gotta edit some of them. You do. Um, the, the best ones you don't so much, but there's a few where you're like, oh, yeah, the moral of this story is bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's Kipling. <laughs> I mean, Kipling in some ways, Kipling's in some ways been reduced to even worse than he was, but actually he was bad in like an interesting way, you know? Yeah. But the badness is is accurate. <laughs> I remember our mutual friend Jared, when his first kid was born, I bought him a copy of the Just So Stories from the Folio Society. I went all, you know, I went all out. Oh, yeah. And I wrote a nice inscription in it. It was very nice. But, like, I had actually, because I, I knew I know who Kipling is now. Like, you know, when I was 10, I didn't really know. Right. right. And so I went through and I read them looking to try to make sure. I was like, okay, well, some of the caveman stuff's a little weird. So, like, just FYI. But I had missed, uh, was it How the Leopard Got His Spots, which has, like, a racial slur in it. And definitely has problems. And I just didn't reread it for some reason. I had missed it. <laughs> and then I got the Folio Society edition and was flipping through it because I was about to get rid of it. Yeah. I was like, God, God, of course, of course. You know, so I was like, Jared, I'm not telling you to raise your kids. Just FYI, <laughs> this one you're going to want to read first and then decide how to approach it. I'm not yeah. telling you what your decision should be. Just make sure you're aware oh, yeah. of the line at the end of this story. 
But, you know, I mean, the beginning of the Armadillos, the Elephant's Child, Old Man Kangaroo, those are just perfect short stories. Uh, yes. And in terms of, like, an outsized influence on my own writing, to be honest. like <laughs> No, I could see that. I mean, he, well, he really, he had he has a real gift for, like, this kind of mythic playfulness. He really does, actually. I mean, he's, he's Orwell's example for, like, um, good, bad poetry. You know what I mean? Like, he's Orwell's yeah. top good, bad poet, where his stuff is so resounding that it, he, I, he says it beautifully Orwell. He's like, he, he writes the kind of stuff which is obvious, but all good poetry, all good, bad poetry does this, that um, he describes something obvious in, in an interesting way that when you, you experience it later, your mind immediately goes to the line you read in Kipling. And so it kind yeah. of makes the poetry feel deeper and deeper the longer you're away from it, which I think is exactly right with Kipling. It's like I'll tell a story. The other day, Julia and I had both been drinking, um, and what we we, we read? Yeah, I know. We we read to each other a fair amount, right? But we were too drunk to keep reading Doomsday Book, which is what I've been reading, uh, and what we've been reading. I mean, and so I read a couple of just so stories, and like. I don't think any phrase in the English language has stuck with me more as a reader and a writer than the pause and that is the way bicolored python rock snakes always talk. <laughs> like that's that's so important to me as a reader and a writer. And I think honestly everything I do as a writer is trying to do that. To capture that. That yeah. just sort of like pause, look at the reader and say something very funny and then do it two or three times throughout the story so it becomes this great running gag as well as a sort of, like, a Homeric epithet. Yeah, You know what I mean? Totally. Like that's He does that so much. Like, you know, it's always Mother Jaguar, Mother Jaguar graciously waving her tail. Right. And it's a way the kids can keep track of what's going on. It's a funny line. And, yeah, it's, it's Homer, right? It's the wine-dark sea. It's 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 the same thing. Um, anyway, I didn't read the Gesso stories this year except for those two. But, yeah, Kipling, he's... Uh, when he's good, he's good, and when he's bad, he's incredibly racist. <laughs> uh, and when he's good, he's incredibly racist. Let's be real; like, they, that say, doesn't go away. That's, that's, that's the through line. That's the real throughout. <laughs> no, I, Orwell again. Or, Orwell's quite good on on him. I'll have to maybe listen to that essay. Um, but yeah, my, so yeah, my themes this year. I feel like it, again, the only only other theme beyond maybe um, I didn't read enough or remember enough. I feel like I did read several long books besides the long book podcast I do with you, <laughs> you know, which I don't always do, to be honest, because it, it can be hard truthfully. Like, and like, we're both very busy people and, um, we read tr like at least once one of our four books is usually a true project. Usually it's two, but like, um, it can be hard to do other projects on top of four big projects while also like leading a full adult life, you know? Um, yeah. but for some reason, like I began the year, I finished, um, Lord of the Rings, right? I finished two towers and return of the King. Um, I, uh, I read, uh, the Moonstone for the first time, Wilkie Collins, which is a long Victorian murder mystery that kind of invert, invents the English detective story. Um, e even, um, oh yeah, <laughs> the radicalism of the American Revolution wasn't super, super long, but it was pretty dense for me because I don't know anything about history. David Copperfield, you know, like Tigana. These were all mm -hmm. fairly long stories. I didn't read a ton else besides those, I feel like, but I read, I read a lot longer than I thought. And then the, the one before we kind of start to maybe wrap it up a little bit, the one I really wanted to get out there, cause I, I think you've read him, but I also think you would love him reading him again, is I finally read The Best of Richard Matheson. I've read a little bit, not as much as I should. So, I've, yeah. I've, so I actually read him in college because he wrote I Am Legend. And so like a lot of people, the movie came out and I read the book, which is you know a long short story basically, and then it has other short stories with it. And so I read some of his short stories before. Um, but I'd never gone through all of them and I really liked him. 
I, I how I put it to you, I think, and maybe in a newsletter somewhere or something was like he, he's sort of Ray Bradbury for horror, you know, like he can yeah. and, and, and exactly what you said about Ray Bradbury, where it's like this is some of the greatest writing on the human psyche. And then the next part really is like, oh, boy, we better shoot that bucket full of holes and see who can spit the farthest. You know, I don't know. It's it's really <laughs> it's honestly it's really weird. Like some of his stuff is really weird, but. But yeah, I really it was really nice to kind of like I've been wanting to get to that one for a long time and it was it was pretty it was pretty much exactly what I wanted it to be. Well, I I, I think I said this to you. You wrote a Substack about how Richard Matheson is your dad's favorite book, which I, I really loved that essay you wrote, by the way. Uh, it was a really good bit, partly because you say your dad doesn't have to actually be your dad. It can be the cool teenager at youth group who lent you a dog-eared paperback, which I really like. Uh, I mean, my dad was my dad, but you know, it was it was a good <laughs> right. it was a good yeah. uh, thank you. It was a good bit, but. I, I said this to you, but like you described one of his short stories with such a long feg hoot, and it unlocked an ancient memory for me of my dad summarizing that story to me, and then just looking very pleased with himself at the end of it. Uh, and so I appreciate you reading that book this year. <laughs> well, I, really I actually I, I told you this, but I'll I'll say it again. Like what was so funny is reading it, uh, reading the book, and then writing the the essay I wrote. I actually did think about Tom Coberly. Like there was something about it that I was like, this is the exact kind of household Bill grew up in. <laughs> you know, his dad knew yes. who Richard. Matheson was, and he would have exposed him to it. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't actually read very much, but yeah, Dad liked Matheson a lot. Like, I remember him talking to me at length about the difference between the original story and the Will Smith movie and the Charlton Heston Omega Man I Am Legend yep, adaptation. Yep. And there's another one, I think. I think there's a, one of like the 40-minute like double feature ones, I think. Uh, I think there's another one. I remember Dad really talking to me at length about that. Have, so. have you seen the Charlton Heston one? I haven't. Doesn't it end with him like being crucified? It's, on the it's exactly though, that image. Yeah. So he's like yeah. at a fountain yeah. <laughs> and it's bleeding. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's like the worst movie I've seen. Pam, Pam, Pam Greer's in it. <laughs> Pam Greer is in yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it can't be all bad. <laughs> I mean, she's amazing, but it is. It's the we- It's like the the vampires begin the movie in sunglasses. <laughs> very <laughs> like good. At night. <laughs> That's Sorry, very, very I haven't good. seen it since like since you know early college or whatever. It was a long time ago, and it I remember thinking it was gonna be like really great for some reason, and it was sort of like a, a, a um I don't know a lesson in and how dumb I am. Oh, and it's not of course, no, it's not Pam Greer. It's Rosalind Cash. I don't know who that is, but I was gonna be astonished if Pam Greer had been in it. Yeah, so that yeah. Make, the world makes a little more no, sense no, that, now. Yeah, All it right. definitely does. So, but yeah, but it's a funny bizarre movie that i haven't actually until you mentioned it just now i haven't thought about since you know probably 2009 uh that's very good um i have one other book i wanted to ask you about and this is not a small project so you're welcome to just respond with a sentence but you finished augustine's confessions this year right i did yeah actually um yeah i mean i i think i wrote this in my my reading journal even that it's it's always sometimes hard when you finish a classic because the experience of a classic is sort of like you discover it, right? That's actually what it is yeah. every time. Is that I, I? That's how I feel with Gene Wolfe. It turns out there's an entire like podcast industrial complex built to telling you how great Gene Wolfe is, but until I discovered him, it's like no one else had, right? That's sort of the yeah. that's sort of the beauty of reading, actually, to be honest. But with 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 Augustine especially, I I wasn't prepared for how much his bio, his biographical stuff was going to resonate. Like I I wrote a tweet one mm-hmm. time. Um, and I read I read a lot of it in 2020 actually, and I finished it this year. Um, but he's kind of like the patron saint of like smart, sensitive boys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, like he talks at one point about he'll never forget the beatings his masters gave him, and he'll never understand why his parents didn't comfort him. They just told him it was how society was. 
Um, you know, he has moments like that where it, it really stands out again. Like even it, it feels almost anachronistic. You know what I mean? Like um, that he would, he would give such what feels like a modern take on caning, but of course caning always hurt, you know, it was never like yeah. people were unaware of the damage being done. Um, so I, I wasn't totally prepared for that to be honest. And then truthfully, as, as someone who, you know, is still a Christian in adulthood, I feel like if, if you are raised Christian and then you stay Christian or maybe this is true for any faith, I don't know. I've only, I've only had the one faith, so I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a way in which, um, you will always go through this sort of doubt cycle or through some kind of challenging time where you have to figure out, you know, how to stay with the faith or almost how to make it your own or, or, or whatever. And I feel like Augustine, he is also the patron saint of like, hey, I am having an existential reaction that's based totally on me, like, intellectually doubting all of this stuff, right? Like, I don't think it's true for these really good, educated reasons, but that's combined with an existential angst that I can't resolve. And so the way he comes through that, you know, it is, it, it is, it was very, yeah, it was very moving, to be honest, the way that he is nurtured and through all of his doubt by his mother, especially. And then also just his unceasing intellect um, in the face of doubt and anguish was really encouraging to be honest. You know, it's like he is, he is the patron saint of like, you keep asking why, you know, and and you don't get to a bottom, but you, you do, you do find more ground ahead of you as you keep asking why. And the last thing I'll say is I, I finished. So traditionally um, the confessions are like, you know, um, they're assigned like books one through 10, because that is like the biography, right? That is the yeah. that is his life. And then books 11 through 13 are sort of a lot of like philosophical stuff about time and Genesis and the beginning of the world. And actually, it was some of my favorite parts of the book because, again, I, I think that he, he he's written an intellectual biography about what kind of kept him out of the faith and how he was drawn into it despite his own kind of, you know, misdeeds and whatnot. And then like you get to the part where, okay, we're almost caught up to the future. We're caught caught up to the present. Like he's in the faith. What's going on now. And it's like a continuing intellectual journey, right? Like here are the debates I find myself embroiled in some of which don't matter unless you're in the faith. But he, he, again, he does it with such startlingly transparency and honesty. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no wonder he created an entire genre of writing. Um, but yeah, what I would say is it, you know, it's hard to say anything new about it, except you can kind of just maybe testify to like, it meant a lot to read it. You know, it was a really moving book that I, I wasn't expected to be moved by as much as I was. And I'm, I'm really glad I finished it. I, I was worried it was going to take me even longer to get back to it, but I kind of, made myself during COVID when I had COVID this summer and I was like, okay, this is your chance. Like you can't, you can't, you can't stand up without fainting. <laughs> this is your chance to lie in bed and finish this damn book. <laughs> that makes sense. So. I remember, Cause I read part of it in college, but in two chunks, like I read, yeah, like books one through 10 and I don't think even all of it, but a lot of it yeah. in like an intro to thinking class, which, you know, I can never tell if those classes are good or not. But anyway, I did that. But then, like, years later, two, three years later, I was reading Wittgenstein in the Philosophical Investigations. Right. And Wittgenstein's like, so let's talk about Augustine's theory of language. And you're like... His what? Really? <laughs> okay, Ludwig. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I vaguely remember that. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Which, But that's how Wittgenstein's brain works. Like, it used to be said that the only philosopher he'd ever actually read was Schopenhauer. And that's not literally true. But, but it might be. It might be a little yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> He was uh, quite a guy. I'm going to have to do a deep dive on Wittgenstein again someday. Uh, same. Today. I feel like, yeah, he's one of those guys you have to come back to. Cause I, yeah, I feel the same about him. 
but but yeah, man. So what? I mean, so I feel like um, we've we've gone through a lot of the books. I, I I I hesitate asking this question, but I don't think I've actually asked you. Best of, what's the best of for you for the, for the entire year of reading? Yeah, so I mean, the Wizard Knight is probably the short answer. Um, that book really got me. Uh, I liked all the books we read for the podcast. I usually do, but I mean, they all it was really, a good year. Always coming home is great. The Long Ships is so much fun, and you know. I talked for two and a half hours about Ulysses S. Grant last time, so I won't do it again. But, you know, I like Ulysses S. Grant. He's cool. Yeah. Uh, I like him. Um, I really enjoyed the Scott Lynch, which I already talked about, the Lies of Lacamora. I really enjoyed The Big Time by Fritz Leiber. I was totally blown away by that. And uh, I really enjoyed the Charles Portis. Uh, so I, I think I've hit all the best books, except I read Piranesi for the third year running uh, by Susanna Can't Clark. Go wrong. And I've talked about it a lot on the podcast yeah. but so the first year 2021 i read it for the first time 2022 i listened to the audiobook because it's chill with for and like come on uh come on and then the third thing i read it this year i read it to julia because again we've been trading books back and forth right and uh yeah no i mean piranesi remains one of my absolute favorite novels of all time um i don't even know as i, I tried to write a substack about both it and the wizard knight a little bit about how i I don't even know how to talk about them yeah. because they're just so transcendently beautiful that like, I don't, I don't feel equal to the task. It's not that I don't think I can pick it apart and it will still hold up. Like there are books. I'm like, I really like this. I don't want to look at it too closely because I think it probably isn't that good. These are not that it's, you know, they're beautiful, incredible, incredibly well-crafted books. And yeah, but Piranesi, I mean, my, my next tattoo is almost certainly going to be the woman carrying a beehive. Um, so Piranesi remains good three times, three, three, three years in a row. Piranesi is still really good. Um, but that does bring me to one other minor book I wanted to talk... Well, not a minor book, but a book I wanted to talk about quickly. I read Tom Robbins' Jitterbug Perfume this year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a bit of a zag here, right? Yeah. But uh, it's a book that Julia had read when she was, like, in high school, I think, and had really, really loved. And so when we were thinking about what are some, like... You know, when you start a new relationship, and I've only done this a few times, but, like, there's this bit where you're, like, showing them your favorite books or favorite movies. It's like, here's a little piece of my soul. <laughs> how you react is very important do you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like you don't have to love it but if you don't i'm breaking up with you do you know what i mean like, <laughs> and uh so we're doing we've been doing a lot of that with movies and and one thing we've realized is we both really like very violent movies <laughs> like we were looking at our list of films and it was like pretty pretty graphic stuff throughout uh, and you know i don't want to talk a lot about my relationship it's not the point of the podcast but like we also uh, jitterbug perfume is a book that she had really enjoyed and it's such a strange book have you read any tom robbins this no no I, I know he wrote um girl country girls can't get the blues or whatever that's called. only cowgirls yeah, get the blues. Yeah, okay. yeah and uh a lot of other really strange stuff he's not gonna be my guy but about a third of the way through jitterbug perfume i was getting annoyed with it and then i realized no he's this is a bit like, his ridiculous metaphors that are, like, two sentences long and are sort of funny but also not funny and often very explicitly sexual, this is the bit. Like, this is this is a very long <laughs> bit that he's committing to. Right, right. And, you know, as I have said on more than one occasion, there's almost nothing in the world I appreciate more than serious commitment to a bit. <laughs> and I began enjoying it a lot more at that point. And it's, it's fun. It's this weird book that is partly about a series of dueling perfumers living in like 1988 or whatever and it was written in New Orleans and Paris and so on who are trying to find this great perfume and it's partly this very strange story about like a bohemian king in like the 11th century who meets this figures out how to live forever and also hangs oh. out with Pan wow 
And, like, it's all connected at the end in some ways that are sort of surprising. And then it's got this weird sort of afterlife bit that doesn't work at all. But, like, I enjoyed the book a lot as just an exercise in gall. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. an exercise in yeah. just doing whatever he wants for 350 pages. I, I appreciate it. And, again, he's so committed to the bit throughout that I liked it a lot more than I thought. I had a fairly long conversation afterwards about why I think it's philosophically incoherent, which probably <laughs> didn't win me any points. Um, but... Uh, it was, it was, it was fun. And, uh, I will say, I don't know if I'm going to be a Tom Robbins guy, but I'm very glad I did it. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Both for its own sake. And also because, yeah, this was a book that was very important to, you know, my partner at like 16. I guess the last thing I should ask you is wh- what are, what are the things you're looking forward to in this next year of reading? So the only other thing I'm going to say, sorry about Jitterbug Perfume is you, you talk a lot about writers giving you permission, right? You've talked about it this podcast. Yeah. Uh, you've talked about it a lot before, and that's been a very helpful idea for me, right? is uh, which i got from you you got it from somebody else and i got it from you uh and i think to some extent tom robbins did give me permission to just just do whatever weird thing is on my mind sort of like gene wolf although they're just impossibly different writers right (laughs) yes but like you know just do whatever weird thing you want to do and if your editor says what the hell are you doing that's his problem yeah like maybe you have to cut it but still write it yes and that's been comforting to remember like yeah the world contains both Jitterbug Perfume and The Wizard Knight, so there's probably room for your weird shit, too. Like, just make it happen. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, no, I totally agree. No, I really do. Anyway, so I'll answer the question you actually asked. What am I excited about for next year? I've got a very deep TBR shelf right now, um, which is just stuff I've picked up. There's a few things. Like, so I read the first volume of Churchill's World War II last year, uh, and it's good. It's, you know, it's, it's a memoir. Like, you shouldn't read it as pure history. Right. But it's enjoyable. It's a little annoying because during most of this time frame, he's not in charge in the first book. And he keeps saying, and then I told them, don't do this. Hitler will do terrible things. And then they didn't do it. And we started a war. And you're like, yeah, I know you're always right. But then he quotes the letter he sent to Parliament or the prime minister where he says, don't do this because Hitler will do X, Y, and Z. And then Hitler did X, Y, and part of Z. And you're like, yeah, okay. I guess if I had repeatedly told people how to not have World War II... And then they did the things I told them not to do. I would also. And we have World War II. <laughs> I would also occasionally have to bang the gong that said, I told you not to do that. I mean, yeah. I, I would be hard not to oh, do yeah, that. Oh, yeah, really hard. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. And Churchill's, of course, really good at writing. I don't I, You know, he's Churchill. He's very, he's very full of problems and so on. But, like, it's an enjoyable read. It's not hard. It's just there's six, 800-page volu- uh, volumes of it. So I'm going to try to finish that. I've been saying that on the podcast for, like, two years now. But I'm halfway through the second one or not even but partway through the second one i'm going to try to finish that i'm going to read that charles portis miscellany i'm going to finish some of the more fritz library including uh our lady of darkness which is supposed to be very strange but very good um he wrote it after his wife died and it was apparently very personal Mm. um and what else am i reading next year oh i got (laughs) julia got me all of the dark tower by stephen king uh and so i'm going to do that um, I've read the first 20 pages of the first book and actually really liked it, but for whatever reason, didn't get back to it years ago. So I'm excited to do that. Mm. I know that goes in some really weird places, but I'm excited to read it. And I'm going to try to do some more, you know, I'm, I'm reading the book of the new Sun by Gene Wolfe. That's obviously going to take over my life for a while. And I got about two thirds of the way through it, but didn't finish it last year. David Bentley Hart's translation of the new Testament. Oh yeah. And I'm about five minutes away from becoming a big David Bentley Hart stand. Uh-oh. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting pretty close. Um, I really like him. He's such a jerk, and it's very funny. Uh, I listened to a podcast interview he did. Some Dominican friar attacked. I saw his newsletter about that. And Hart, I mean, even he said he was to me. Yeah. And I listened to most of it, and it's just it's just vicious and very funny. 
And Phil Chrisman wrote a, a really good couple of pieces about him last year. Uh, remember that time Phil Chrisman was on our podcast, by the way? Yeah, that's, that's, really that's cool. wild. <laughs> but anyway, he, he wrote a couple of really good pieces on DBH last year. And I, I, I think I'm about to be a DBH guy. Um, about every third thing he says goes way the heck over my head. He wrote a really funny essay just a few weeks ago about how to write in English, which is, I don't think anyone should follow the advice, but I loved it. It was great. <laughs> oh, no, it's totally, well, it's like everything else he does, where it's like, this is brilliant. It's totally useless to me, David. You know? Yeah, like, I can't do this, David. Like, like, I have a better vocabulary than most people. I'm not going to just throw out pogonotrophy. Well, like, I don't, I don't have that one in my pocket. Well, I'm really, I'm really happy for you that, like, you have this system. You know, like, that's great, man. Like, you're really, and I think your, your argument about, like, you know, prose being boring is totally accurate. We've, we've made everything telegraphic and journalistic and, and yada, yada. At the same time, do you know anyone else who writes like you? <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> like there's a reason that you're you um, and no one else is. I, I do think he's, he's one of the writers and thinkers who, um, and I've only read, I don't think I even finished um, the book that I read of his, but I think his best stuff, it seems like it's unmissably great based on the people who like it, you know, but yeah. he does seem to be one of these guys who like, he can't help but write a lot, you know, which is good. Oh yeah. It's a good problem to have actually, but it also means that you're, you're kind of, you're kind of, I don't know, to be like Oklahoma for a second, you're kind of constantly hanging your ass out as well. You know, like you can't help but do it if you write that much. But like, I, I, I follow his Substack, and I, I think I give him five bucks a month to read all of it, and I really enjoy it because one will be here's an argument I had with somebody where I was too mean. Here's an argument I had where I wasn't mean enough. Here's my review of the newest translation of Journey to the West, That's what I mean. and with it, yeah. two thousand words about the greatness that is like mid second millennium Chinese literature. Yes. You're like, I do you read? You must actually just me read like thirteenth century Mandarin, huh? That's when did you? When did you do that? When did you take time from being one of the best read theologians of our age and learn 13th century? He's a throwback. I mean, honestly, well, he's even said in interviews or whatever, he, he, he wants, he wanted to be a novelist. That's, that's still how he thinks of himself. He's a novelist who just has such a wide interest and such a large brain. He keeps getting distracted. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. Well, you're, you're one of like the authorities on a certain like movement of theology with like John Milbank and stuff, you know, like not, not actually totally the same group, but you know, like that's all John Milbank does. You know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's not also writing novels from from the point of view of his dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like so that's why. It's, and something else, I feel like people who don't like DBH, I I get it. I can understand why. I don't know enough about him not to not like him because mostly what I see is just like it seems fun. You know, like he seems like he's so full of ideas that there's a, there's a certain fun element to that that I find irresistible. To be honest. Yeah, so, you know, I don't actually have any other of his books right now, but I'm, I'm seeing that precipice open before me, uh, is that I'm going to do a deep dive on DBH, maybe not next year, but soon. So what about you? What have you got coming up next year that you're excited about? That's a good question, yeah. I should have thought of you asking me that <laughs> in response. That's, that's the whole reason you <laughs> asked the question first, is to listen to the other guy and then co- uh, cohere your answer. I've said that in the podcast before. That's why I ask you questions. It's not because I care about your answer, so I can think about my own answer. <laughs> I, I didn't do that this time. <laughs> no, I um, I'm gonna keep. I, I'm going a lot slower than I want to, but I'm gonna keep plotting through Gene Wolfe more or less chronologically. I think so. I'm gonna read Peace next, and then Devil in the Forest. I think those are the next two novels by him um, that I'm gonna try and put together. Um, I do want to finish Lost in the Cosmos by Walker Percy. I, I found that to be annoyingly profound. Actually, the book. Um, 
you know, like he, it's really funny. It's like, it's the, the subtitle is like the last self-help book you'll ever need or whatever. Cause it's, it's sort of like, <laughs> so he parodies self-help. He like takes it apart. But at the same time, he has a genuine project in mind. You know, he calls like, he says like man is uh, the signifying creature, the cre- you know, the, the guy who can mm. make meaning out of symbols. And I don't know. I, again, that's, I didn't read all of it. So I, I want to, um, and I, so that can become even more annoying to people who don't care about things. Um, <laughs> as always, I really do. I would like to revisit some of my favorite books. I feel like the last few years I've had just a lot of projects in my head, you know, that I wanted to get to. Um, like even honestly, they weren't, they weren't big books, but I, only one of them has been published this year, but like I, I wrote two book reviews last year on pretty slim volumes, but like it's still, that's still a new thing for me. I haven't written a lot of actual book reviews. I'm trying to be more open to like nonfiction stuff, you know? And, um, and so I spent way too much time thinking about both of them. I, I read both books twice basically and took way too many notes. And so I don't know this year I want to get better at, at like not just having these projects kind of overtake me, like rereading, um, Gate of Angels by Penelope Fitzgerald or doing more Mural Spark or revisiting Dennis Johnson. You know, I kind of just want to go back to maybe the touchstones a little bit, I think. Um, but also actually we're kind of doing, I mean, she's not quite in that category, but spoiler alert our next podcast is going to be about one of my favorite living authors yeah i was just uh, making sure i had the name right i was just uh, typing that up on google to make sure i had it right we did decide our next book uh, at the end of our last podcast we hadn't decided yet but uh i i, I made joel read ulysses s grant so now joel's going to make me read one of his favorite books i'm excited about it i'm, I'm being a smart aleck as always uh it's kate atkinson's life after life which i don't know a ton about but from the jacket copy it's like a little girl, like a baby, is born and dies, except that she also then lives, and it appears to be sort of that is the premise, which I'm excited about. Uh, what's fun is I posted, when, when that came in, along with some Laird Barron short story collections I bought, uh, partly because Laird Barron's in the hospital, and so I was, you know, I figured I'd buy some of his books. Um, anyway, uh, I posted a picture on Facebook, like, new book day, as I do, and like 10 people were like, Life After Life is great, which was really fun. <laughs> Usually our podcast books are not books that people have heard of. Uh, I mean, people have yeah. heard of them, but not, you know, my Facebook friends so much. So that was that's kind of exciting. I think I, w- I will say that I'm actually, like, kind of nervous for this one. <laughs> 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 because um, so, so Kate Atkinson, she has been filling that P.D. James hole in my life where, like, she's very, very intelligent. She's probably a better writer than P.D. James in some ways. But Life After Life is sort of like her acknowledged, at least current masterpiece or whatever. And I haven't read it. I've read basically every other novel she's written, except. Oh, I thought you had read it. No. I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. So I'm even more nervous because, like, one, I'm nervous how you will react to Kate Atkinson in general, but also, like, I, you know. I don't. I, I don't know. Like this. What if this is the one Kate Atkinson novel that I don't really like? Which I don't think will happen. But um. But I actually. I in our in our little chat. I actually gave you like six options <laughs> in an effort to like. I don't know. Maybe he. I don't know. Maybe he'll do. Maybe he'll do pension with me this time, which we'll do eventually. But um. Yes. I even tried to talk you into a, a Michael Chabon repeat, which you didn't even. You didn't even glance at that one. You like blew right past that one. <laughs> No, I mean, I want to read The Yiddish Policeman's Union, but not right now. Um, Also, that's more explicitly like alternate history genre fic. And we we need to do a big lit fic book. We haven't done one. Which, which, yeah, this definitely will be that, I think, overall. We'll see. (laughs) No, I I, I seriously considered, you're right, I didn't consider the Shavon 2 seriously. But I did consider, uh, the other options were Pachinko by someone, I can't remember her name. Mason and Dixon by Pynchon and Life After Life. 
And I, I don't know. I just think Life After Life. I think it's going to be good. Stuck out to me. It'll be good. I think it'll be really fun. And I will say, yeah, for anyone listening, I, 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 we often, you know, joke about reading along to, you know. Ulysses S. Grant's edited memoirs, which no one will do, <laughs> but <laughs> but this one, this one is like it's over 500 pages. So it gets our little gimmick out of the way, but it Kate Atkinson is so readable um, and so enjoyable. Which I, I hate, I hate actually using those terms like so readable, but I, I do think sometimes, like you said, we read weird enough stuff that it sometimes is a good reminder that like this one everyone likes. Do you know what I mean? Like she is an awesome, intelligent writer who no one says, oh, I didn't really understand why that changed or whatever. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, Life After Life's our next, our next book. I, th- I think it'll be a fun, it'll be a fun podcast at the very least. No, I'm really looking forward to it. Joel shot down my suggestion that we read the memoirs of William Tecumseh Sherman. <laughs> That's not true. I, d- I, I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Never. No, I love, I actually, what's so dumb is like, I, I'm sure you've been thinking about Grant a lot last month too. I can't stop thinking about him. <laughs> I love that book. Well, so again, the big time, the Fritz Leiber time travel story, like one of the characters is from an alternate history where the South won. And he says, like, he knows that that's not the original history, right? That's one of the fun tensions right. of the characters who are fighting for one side, even as their side is undoing stuff. Right. And, uh, he says like, and I think back on the South where Grant's guns were never heard at Vicksburg. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I can't get away from him. He's everywhere. Also, Grant's guns were hurt at Vicksburg. A whole bunch. You lost, you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right. Well, that's probably it. We ended on another Ulysses S. Grant trip, Had so to. I'm happy to yep. call it there. I think that's it. Um, well, hey, as as Joel mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this has now been five years of this podcast. I've uh, been saying this all year, but I you know, continue to be very thankful for this project, and I'm enjoying it a lot. And it's a real, uh, I almost said it's a real blessing. Good gravy yeah, what's happening yeah. to me. Augustine came uh, into it one time and yeah, you were like, let's do it. Let's go there. <laughs> let's go back to like 1960s prayer language. I don't know. Uh, no, but it's been a really wonderful thing to uh, not only do this project with you, Joel, but to have a, a number of people listen to it. Uh, you know, we have friends who listen to it and then send us all their notes after uh, one friend in particular, and it's just really, really delightful. It is. It's wonderful. Uh, every time. Yeah. So uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, as Joel says, the next book should be one that it is possible to read along with. Uh, I mean, they're all possible, but you know, we're not giving out Charles Taylor as a homework assignment to sort of the podcasting world unless you're just really a masochist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, sometime in March, we don't announce dates because we never know until the day of uh, when we're going to be able to do it for sure. But uh, we're looking forward to Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, and that's as far as we've gotten for this next year. But uh, I think it'll be another good time. And, you know, here's to another five years, Joel. Here, here, man. Talk to you later, man. See you, Bill. Bye.
Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.